All right, y'all, what is up? You're listening to brand new Hot and Fresh Out the Kitchen episode of Mandatory OT with Chris and Dave, who's mixing up some of their Kratom. And thank you so much. We have aboard the ship today, Amr from the podcast uh, Das Criminal, um, or Das Criminal. I, I don't, I'll, be, I'll be so honest. I have no idea how to pronounce no, that. You, you can say it either way. So, like, um, I like to say Das Criminal because we use the pun from Das Capital, uh, but yeah. But thanks for having me. Oh, oh, duh. Oh, yeah. No, hell yeah. Thanks so much for coming on for such a such a massive, monstrous topic. This is something that, that Dave and I have been talking about covering for, again, as we've said, for like the past for a while episodes. that we've wanted to cover. You yeah. Know, <laughs> some and some shade of of, you know, of social, you know, of Arab, Arab socialism and, you know, what defines it. And, and been like such a big umbrella. Not only that, but like the interpretations that it it has in the US media versus um you know what 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 it really is. And we're really excited to actually like have someone who is knowledgeable, you know, talk to us about this. We're just excited to, to learn about this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um this is this is a very uh very convoluted and messy topic. And um I'm gonna try and give a sort of as objective as I can be, but uh there's a lot of things that are still I don't want to say unknown. But there is conflicting opinions mm-hmm. and conflicting information on like the history and the the, the various figures that we're gonna go into. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, so you're like, telling me that the quick Wikipedia dives does not give me all the information for this? <laughs> yeah, I I don't I I would not consider Wikipedia me me and every high school teacher you've probably had would not consider Wikipedia um, a good source, even though you know. I kind of like going into Wikipedia and like losing myself in like 20 tabs of like uh, various pages. Um, but Wikipedia is also a very sort of uh, ideologically driven project. So I wouldn't trust oh, it yeah. on something. Yeah. 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 yeah we, uh, Two of like the top contributors are like weird, like libertarian and caps. Yeah. It's funny because uh, there's, there's like a joke that, that, that with some friends and acquaintances that it's like wikipedia is the cia's library <laughs> <laughs> i like that i'm gonna steal that one i like that uh... <laughs> but yeah you have to you have to take everything that you read there with like a grain of salt and really kind of put it through that critical lens there's some there's some good stuff if you read between the lines but obviously that requires reading between the lines and and doing it with with this topic with arab socialism with with Nasser and and everything. Oh my God! Like, it, I don't even know how you create Wikipedia articles on this because uh, so many well, sources for, aren't in English. Well, for like, yeah, for a good yeah. example, I actually tried to um, what is it? The Battle for One Destiny or the uh, Michelle Affleck's uh, uh, seminal book? And like, it's actually I had a hard time. Like, unless like places I found, I looked to try to just find a PDF version of it in English where like the only ways that I would go to Reddit or other places and they'd be like, you got to have a college library login. Like if yeah. you got to get it, like they make it hard to access a lot of the literature for this as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Some of these, some of these works are very difficult to find um, properly translated. Um, and the, the Arabic, the, the, like the original Arabic is very, um, uh, it's very formal. So like the, the problem with Arabic as a language is that it's kind of like it's very hard to call it a language is because if you look at the Middle East, each country at this point speaks its own dialect of Arabic to the point that like 
some can be mutually incomprehensible to others. Like, if, like when I okay, so I'm from Bahrain, right? And I went to Morocco like a few years ago. I had like a, I was backpacking through there, and like I thought it was gonna be easy because I was alone. I thought it was gonna be easy because like they're Arab, I'm Arab. Surely we could communicate. It turns out I couldn't mm-hmm. understand a single word that they would say in Arabic, oh, no. quote unquote Arabic. So we'd end up communicating in like French or English. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like if you put like, say, an Egyptian, a Syrian and a Yemeni and an Iraqi in a room, the chances of them understanding each other would be like 40 to 60 percent at best. And then you have written Arabic, which is like like kind of like what Latin is to Spanish uh, and Italian or Spanish, Italian and French. It's like the yeah. language, but people don't use it in their daily lives. That's cool as hell. So it's like, uh, I remember growing up, like taking Spanish in high school and our, our teacher touch on like, yeah, Latin is like the, it's like the, the father of the romance language. It's like you said, like Italian, whatever the hell. So to kind of like see that moved up, like uh, it, it, to see like a modern day version of that, like just linguistically is also really, really interesting. Like just as someone that's kind of into that. So <laughs> Oh yeah, it's very it's very bizarre. Like you'd watch you'll watch Arab TV and like newscasts and other official uh like you know programs would be in formal Arabic and then you'd watch like TV shows and dramas and comedies and they'd be in colloquial Arabic and they're like two different entities altogether. Damn. God, I can oh, I cannot imagine. Yeah, so I don't I don't blame people for not like being jump. able to read <laughs> Uh, to read uh, Aflaq or, or Gaddafi's Green Book or, or what, what not. Well, I mean, it's kind of like if you're like, all of a sudden you start watching, you know, this, this Scottish sitcom and you need subtitles because you just have no idea what they're saying. <laughs> the are so sick. I actually find the Scottish accent very amusing for some reason. <laughs> no, I, I agree 100%. Uh, yeah. It is like strangely like a pleasant accent to listen to. This is probably a little problematic, but I I've been working from home for a year and I'm I'm not going to lie. I've done this since before that. But I've been going slowly insane, so I have two cats. And I've created characters for them. One of them <laughs> is a men's rights act. One of them is a men's rights activist and the other one is a Scottish nationalist. <laughs> complete with my very bad scottish accent (laughs) Uh, why why would a scottish nationalist like like surely surely the 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 men's right activist and the scottish nationalist could find like a common ground to form a front against boris johnson's government no because here's the thing here's the thing scottish nationalist loves kilts men's rights activist thinks it's a dress <laughs> that is a good point that is a good point yeah. <laughs> why'd you say <laughs> or no that's the boogaloo so i would say the hawaiian shirts are the kilts of the mr of the men's rights act <laughs> yeah, that's yes, the boogaloo yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah they're boogaloos yeah <laughs> so uh I guess just before like, we veer off any further, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, please, if you would like, uh, go ahead and like tell us a little bit about yourself. How, like, what question we always ask guests we have on is, is what was your path to radicalization? What brought to you to become a socialist? And you know, what brand have a socialist, if you want to call it that? What tendency? What theory do you do you tend towards? 
Right, so my name is Amr. Um, I'm from Bahrain um, originally, uh, born in Kuwait, raised in Bahrain. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I was raised in a country that is very uh, politically active. To be fair, the whole Middle East is very politically active. Um, but personally, mm -hmm. I, so if I'm talking to like, forgive me for this term, normies, like people who aren't like, you know, so brain poisoned, they follow politics on a daily basis. Um, I just yeah. call myself a socialist because I'm really not going to go into the weeds with these people and be like, so here's here's where I differ from <clears throat> from other socialists. But so like I'll I'll just call myself a socialist and then you know work from there. But with other like you know friendly faces, other leftists, other socialists, I tend to go with Marxist Leninism. That's the closest tendency I I sympathize with. Even though like I've been criticized by Marxist Leninists for being too anarchist and by anarchists for being too Marxist Leninist. So uh, make of that what you will. Um, I also, I also, we, we do, get it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do, so I do we have feel... some sympathies for Maoism, though. There, there, there are, there is that as well. I get that as well. So. Yeah, no, we understand. Yeah, I understand that as <laughs> yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. Like every time I, uh, uh, I listen to some bourgeois, liberal like you know college uh professor mumble this or that about like you know uh post-colonialism without taking into account class i think of like mao's cultural revolution and how i want to depopulate all universities and send professors to work on farms <laughs> yes please oh my god <laughs> yeah yeah living yeah live, especially if you live in like in a very like reactionary white area and you're like yeah there needs to be some corner kind, of, kind of like forceful culture like some kind of like complete upheaval yeah. is, oh, is yeah, a part that i definitely yeah <laughs> yeah I, I joke about it but at the same time i listen to some people sometimes and i'm like 20 years in a farm would do you pretty well like like you know some re-education in the <laughs> evening a group criticism and singular criticism and so on and so forth uh, but in terms of radicalization, uh, I began, like, politically, I sort of, like, you know, I was a libertarian in high school, which is, like, very embarrassing for me to admit. No, um, we understand. It's, it is very embarrassing, but we get you. I think, I think, actually, I think libertarianism kind of, like, a lot of, like, young Middle Easterners will tend to, like, drift into libertarianism in high school because it seemed to me, at least growing up, the only ideology in the U.S., or like, you know, broad ideology in the U.S. that was anti-intervention. And, you know, yeah. yeah. So like seeing, seeing that, you're like, yeah, like, hell yeah. Like, you know, Ron Paul definitely says the N-word, but he also wants all troops out of Iraq. So, you know. Yeah, you and that was like, it's, yeah, and that was, but that's really <laughs> what it was, was like, he's a young person getting yeah. into politics. It was seeing Ron Paul going, no, let's bring, you know, get everyone yeah. out of there. We don't need to be there. And I was like, yeah, exactly. That's, you know, at, you know, at 16 years old, that was enough. That was enough for, at least yeah. for me in our situation, yeah, no, be it as is. We were, it oh, we were same vote. here, same yeah. here. I mean, there was, like, there was no left that was, you know, as far as I could tell, like, visible. So the only thing I could mm -hmm. see was Ron Paul. And I'm like, yeah, well, I, I identify with this. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the Bahrain Revolution happened in 2011 as part of the Arab Spring, uh, which mm -hmm. I grew up in. Very, very weird. Um, uh, basically ended up losing this entire semester of high school to it um but Damn. Uh, that, yeah that sort of like like that sort of event like sort of radicalized everyone it sort of pushed everyone into some political uh uh view or another and for me it sort of shifted me into liberalism like like sort of milk toast liberalism which 
which coincided with me moving to Toronto for my university in 2012, in September of 2012. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was like, you know, I, I just, moving to Toronto was a big, pretty much a big fresh start for me. I didn't know anyone here. Um, no one knew me. Um, it was kind of like as, as much of a blank slate as you could get um, in life. So I sort of came here as a liberal and then as throughout university, like I, I, so I did chemistry in university. I studied chemistry, but I would read like, mm-hmm. you know, other texts for fun. So the first book I read that really pushed me left is Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire. Um, and that sort of really like, you know, made me question liberalism and pushed me toward what would be considered radical political thought. And then from there, I just read a lot. You know, I read Marx, I read Lenin, Galliano, Fanon, Said. Um, and I went through the, the gamut uh, from like anarchism to like, you know, iffy, iffy socialism to what would be considered Marxist Leninism. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, yes. I still personally have not read uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. It's it's something that oh, I kind of strongly recommend it. So. It's, it's one of my it's, it's... like, yeah. No, no, go ahead. I was just gonna say, yeah, it's it's oh. one of those that's been on my list that's for a long time. It's I have like my book, half my bookshelf right now is just stuff that's on the list, and that that is one of them. <laughs> oh, it is it is incredible. It is like for me, it is the Quran of the left. Um, uh, like it's very it's very uh, succinct, and Paulo Freire has a way of of making things relatable to the reader that I think other writers sometimes struggle with. Also, on the point you said, where like a lot of your books are on the list. I have the same issue here. And I remember reading a quote <laughs> uh, about, I think it was from Umberto Eco, who said something along the lines of, uh, like, the, the best kind of libraries are the ones where you haven't read a single book in it, because it means that you have books to read instead of, like, you know, showing off with books that you have already read. Yeah, no, I agree. Oh, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, there's always something to look forward to. Yeah, there's always yeah. something. There's always, yeah, there's always more to to learn or more to add to your, you know, to your everyday thinking and analysis. Yeah. Yeah. I usually like I'll, I'll read. And then like, uh, once I finish a book, I'll give it to my friends or donate it to the local library or whatnot to make space for more books. Um, I think I do have a problem. Like I have way too many books and I keep buying more <laughs> for every book I read. I buy like three or more. Yeah, that's that. Dave's constantly like, I'm, like, I'm constantly sending, pictures, sending Chris pictures. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, look what came in the mail today. And he's like, "Aren't you still reading this from like four months ago?" Quiet. Look at the look at this other one. It, oh I, man, I a, getting a getting a book in the mail is such a good feeling. It's like it's so like oh. like opening the book bo- the box and getting. Oh man, nothing beats that feeling. Man, it's been so long since I've bought like a book because I I read a lot on like PDFs and like on my phone and shit just because it's so easy. I do a lot of both. Yeah, a I, lot of... I I much prefer like an actual book though for sure. But like the last thing I read was like Salvador Allende, <laughs> like Ooh, three I need years to read ago. Him. Like, I've, I've uh, read about him, but not uh, the the actual person's right. You know, his daughter Isabel Allende is is a pretty notable uh, poet. No shit, I did not know that. Wow. Yeah, she's a poet slash uh, like like prose writer. Not so much nonfiction, but she's pretty really good. Like. Like my my friend has a couple of her works and they're pretty good. No, that's tight. Um, I gotta gotta write that down. So, um, uh, I guess from there. So you gave us kind of the rundown of of your your tendency, so to speak. So, are there any like organizations you're currently with? Any projects you're working on? Like, 
uh, even like media, thing. like with, 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 with the podcast and everything. So yeah, the podcast does criminal check us out. Uh, we try to do weekly free episodes and then we have a Patreon, um, uh, in which we release bonus content. Um, I have a Substack in which I'm writing, um, it's armor.substack.com. Um, and I write mostly about the Middle East, um, reacting to both present news and, uh, longer form essays on the history and the, the political currents of the Middle East. Um, I, there's not much organizing here right now. Uh, I had to uh, sort of take a step back because of my diagnosis of cancer, uh, which I'm in remission now, by the way, as of two weeks ago. Hell so, yes. Congratulations. Awesome. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, but between, between the pandemic and the chemotherapy and working from home, there hasn't been much space to organize here. Uh, but hopefully yeah, once, feel things, that. once the vaccine spreads here, um, I can go back into uh, organizing with things like the Fight for 15 wage group here and uh, tenant groups and so on and so forth. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Awesome. Uh, really glad to hear about your, your cancer as well. So, Thank you. Thanks. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I'm very oh, lucky right, you know, in many ways. Like, oh, you know, yeah, between, that's, what, between, that's what you were uh, saying. In, oh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, between like uh, you know, like I I don't want to say that Canada is heaven because it's not. There's a lot of problems here, but between uh, you know, universal healthcare and being in a unionized job, which means that I didn't lose my like today was my first day back at work, and you know, being Damn. having that protection, that safety net is really uh, I, I feel very lucky about it to be honest. And how for me, like, yeah, like wondering, wow. like, like as far as far as I'm concerned, Americans should genuinely pick up their rifles and wage protracted people's war for healthcare. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's because yeah, because it's you get you get twelve weeks of unpaid, and then that's it. You lose your job. That's it, no matter what you like, got. That's I, yeah. okay. So America had like all these guns, and everyone talks about these guns as like, yeah, we're gonna fight a government that's supposedly like oppressive and so on. Except, like, by all standards, America is a failed state as far as I'm... No offense, but, like, you know, compared to all... <laughs> no, the no, you're not, no, you're right. <laughs> like, if, if any other country had this amount of guns and this amount of problems, people would genuinely be, like, waging some sort of revolution as they no. currently are in, like, say, Yemen or... or, or yeah. <laughs> Well, so let me think let about me, uh, this very frequently. Let me tell you something a little bit about uh, what we call the culture hegemony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah, it's, the, it's, uh, it's depressing. It's depressing as hell. Because, like you, yeah, we have all those. We do. We have like these tools right in front of us, but we've been so. I, I, I don't know. Maybe that, neutered is the word I want to say. No, of, it's of funny. Just neutered we, of any. Uh, of revolutionary potential because these guns are now seen as as part of that failed state we're upholding the failed state by owning guns like it's they're able to intertwine it in the way that it's just completely neutered here's the thing the people that are the loudest about this shit like it's all performance first off <laughs> yeah um, yeah the people the people that are serious about it are like leftists that are like no we should arm like the masses are acutely aware that if they tried to do this They'd be gunned down in the streets. Yeah, there's just police. not enough. There's just not <laughs> enough. They, they, they'd get yeah. the Fred Hampton treatment. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. People are getting Fred the Fred. You know, the, getting yeah. that Corintel Pro treatment to this day. You know, people from Ferguson and the yeah they were and from the, yeah I heard recent, about like people uh, dying uprisings. in cars and stuff. Yeah, like just, yeah. Like, yeah, and it's yeah, still it's going on. Really disturbing. Uh, but like, yeah, you had you know, coming coming from the Middle East, like you know, we're we're the land of conspiracy theories. So 
seeing that, it's like, yep, the CIA did it. Move on. Okay, great. Like, you know, it's very easy for us to look at like something like Ferguson and be like, yeah, the CIA is definitely doing like, you know, black bag assassination. And they'll call us crazy and then they'll declassify a document in 10 years that says we're right. Yeah, and really. And just rinse, repeat. Yeah, the, uh, like you said, it, it's, it is really interesting because as like, like Dave and I are, are white, we're from West, like West Virginia, Northern West Virginia. And it's like to talk to people and to like say some of that shit, like you said, uh, to say like, no, this is like the CIA is behind like, Weirdly enough, four people that died in burning cars in Ferguson, Missouri, after after what happened there, all happened to be prominent members yeah, of the uprising. Yeah, that all all were like prominent organizers, prominent like black community members. I'm like, how do you not see this? I'm like, COINTELPRO, y'all like ever heard of it? And they're like, no, yeah, that's if crazy. You, if you see the past <laughs> and you're like, well, the CIA did this, like they did COINTELPRO, they did Operation Gladio. Like I just keep repeating Gladio, Gladio, Gladio. Uh, and, like, you read all of this, and then you're like, what makes you think they stopped? Like, what makes you think at some point their function to suppress um, the left uh, has stopped recently? Like, like, surely this is their job description at this point. Yeah, for sure. I think and a lot of it, too, is just a lot of people. I mean, not obviously not those on the left, but just a lot of sentiment of, uh, like, the, again, I said the culture hegemonies. People are like, even if it's not a conspiracy, if it's real... You know, they're like, but that's good. You know, there is a lot of people that are still behind the CIA. Yeah. I mean, you know, the wholeheartedly well, that you have to deal so with. It's so weird seeing, like, the whole, like, during the Trump era, seeing, like, libs cheer on the CIA um, again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was surreal. Yeah, the FBI are the good guys. It was crazy. <laughs> yeah. The FBI like, director honestly, is a these, hero. These, these libs should be taken to, like, any Middle Eastern country and have, like, be disappeared by the secret police there. And then we'll see how they talk about like the, the state app, like the security <laughs> apparatus of the state. That would be that would be a good. I don't know. That'd be so, that would be praxis, I think. Yeah. Oh yeah. But no. I, I would happily fund that. Like I will send them to like Bahrain, where like you could just get disappeared, and like you'll show like like two weeks later you'll show up dead in a corner somewhere, and you know like in a, in a black bag or something. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Oh my lord. All right. So on that it's fantastic <laughs> on that on that happy note. So as let's let's go ahead and just dive into the meat of the episode. And I think that and as we said at the top, we are here to talk about Arab socialism and which as we also kind of alluded to in the beginning can mean a lot of different things. So I guess to start, um so like when did the uh the, the ideology of arab socialism and like what it we can kind of know of it is now start to form and what are some of the constant tenets that cross its varied splits and distinctions right so first of all arab socialism is very distinct from what i would say is socialism in the middle east insofar as there have there have been marxist and communist groups that that sort of read marx and lenin as their as their guides um, in the Middle East since the beginning of the 20th century. But Arab socialism, as in capital A Arab, capital S socialism, as a distinct entity, um, emerged in 1940 when it was articulated by Michel Aflaq, the, the founder of Ba'athism, uh, via v, him establishing his party, which was back then called the uh, uh, Arab Renaissance Movement. Um, it later became Ba'ath. Um, arguably, it was articulated year earlier by a secret establishment of the Syrian Social Nationalist Party by Anton Sa'da in 1933, 
um, which consisted of like secret cells in Syria to resist the French occupation, uh, the French mandate, um, and to call for an independent Greater Syria. So Greater Syria would be Syria, Jordan, Palestine, and Lebanon. That's what people would say is Greater Syria. Um, mm-hmm. And a sort of uh, it, it it synthesized a sort of very very clear uh, uh, class struggle as being the, the driving force of history along with the idea of irredentism of, of like, you know, a greater Syria being a nation um, through which this class struggle could emerge, you know, with the proletarians winning. Um, this is very distinct from Arab socialism as a flock put it, uh, which is, you know, he popularized the most uh, Arab socialist, like the term Arab socialism, uh, which was his way of trying to square the circle of so- like social justice, like, you know, uh, workers' dignity and and women's rights and minority rights and and uh, you know fair wages, uh, social democratic democratic welfare state with anti-colonial nationalism. Um, and one of the interesting things about Arab socialism and Aflaq is that it's very conscious in distinguishing itself from what it considers internationalist Marxism and communism. Um, I mean, Aflaq famously said once, "quote." If I am asked to define socialism, I shall not look for it in the works of Marx and Lenin, end quote. Um, so that's pretty much the most, uh, like, you know, open admission of, of Arab socialism as, as, as a separate entity. Um, and to be fair to Aflaq, there's a reason for this, because Aflaq was involved with the French Communist Party when he was in the Sorbonne um, studying, along with his uh, colleague, uh, Salahuddin Baytar, uh, who I'll get to ba- back to later. But... Um, the thing, the thing, what, what happened was that the French Communist Party in France supported the French mandate of like Syria, like occupying mm, Syria, yeah. and that sort of like made a flock very resentful and very like bitter, right, rightly so. And so, when when forming Arab socialism, there was a strong emphasis on an anti-imperialist line via v nationalism um, instead of like international class solidarity. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised to to hear about the the, the French Communist Party backing the mandate oh, regarding yeah, yeah. Syria, because uh, later on, probably about 40 years later, uh, former French Communist Party members would then vote to like uh, lower the age of consent in France. So. Oh, that that is <laughs> the most French thing I've ever seen. It fucking <laughs> rules. It rules. <laughs> Like, literally, like, fucking in the, in the 40s or something, there was a letter by, like, Sartre and, and Camus and uh, Foucault and, like, Foucault, a bunch of French. Yeah. Like, yeah, they're all like, yeah, no, like, age of consent is, like, the same as fascism. We need to, like, you know, real freedom is, like, you know, no age of consent. Which, like, <laughs> real freedom know. is being able to fuck children. Like, yeah, that's... <laughs> and it was a yeah. lot of, like, post, post-structuralist thinkers, and it's just... Mm, that, Age of consent this, this, is fascism. This is, this is why this is why I tend to like you know like I I I regard the French like uh, school with a bit of like skepticism because like there was way too much focus on age of consent for me to if you're comfortable around <laughs> these thinkers. Because that's a red flag today on the internet. You're like you know my politics are fuck the government. Oh that's cool. Um that also includes uh, maybe lower that. You know, like you know, they start talking about numbers there, and those numbers are between the ages of twelve and fourteen. And those philia, and those, and those philia words are words you don't really recognize. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Uh, you're either talking favorite... to a li- libertarian or a French philosopher. <laughs> oh uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very, it's a very narrow Venn diagram at that point. <laughs> 
so. But like, I get it because, like, you know, uh, even even like years later, like Ho Chi Minh would say, uh, like, you know, the French Communist Party was useless when it came to like organizing the Third World against, you know, oh yeah, powers. Yeah, and that's 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 something that as well, like in in reading. Well, if you like, want to be an effective communist party in France, you got to take down France, one of an imperial power. Yeah, which like, that's that's yeah. the wild because you ha- you do have. Like ostensibly, you have like the Communist Party in like in Britain, and like uh, you also have like the Irish in in Scottish struggles, especially with with Ireland and, and its communist and socialist tradition, which we might actually find a way to touch on when we when we talk about Libya and Gaddafi. Oh yeah, later. you messaged me, and I want <laughs> and I want to talk about that because it's very interesting. But the, the, what really depresses me is that you know a flock rejected all of Western communism as a result of that, including Marx and Lenin which I think mm-hmm. were a lot more, uh, deserve a lot more credit because, you know, Marx and Lenin would definitely be more suitable for Arab, uh, you know, organizing, um, especially Le- Lenin's idea of the vanguard party. But mm-hmm. Aflaq's uh, rejection of this meant that he defined Arab socialism as being fundamentally undergirded by Arab nationalism. Like the socialism mm-hmm. is subsumed into the Arab nationalist idea, um, which for him, and this is a, th- this is a problem with Aflaq, is that, he defined Arab socialism more by what it was not than by what it was. Like, he kept insisting it was a rejection of Western communism and Marxism, as well as Western colonialism and imperialism, which is, like, fair. But as far as what it stood for, as far as as what it was, um, it was some sort of, like, you know, nationalizing all public services and natural resources, as well as foreign trade, large industries, uh, land reform, which, and land reform is, like, a big thing because. Mm-hmm. What different thinkers thought of, of land reform is very different from place to place and from thinker to thinker. So, like what Nasser did in terms of limiting how much land a single family can own is different from Qaddafi, who genuinely collectivized the land. Like farmers work the land as a collective, uh, yeah. as opposed to like single family landholders. Um, and Aflaq also, you know, proposed a robust social welfare state with like healthcare, um, education, uh, you know, equal rights for women, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But he never really uh, confronted the problem of private property or calling for something like the dictatorship of the proletariat. And, and so, wait, uh, so like, so you would say, like, I think one way to like really like notice a difference was, I mean, besides for like how when when Mao talks about the principal contradiction being between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, it seems the Arab socialism is more of towards the the, the contradiction is is you know. Arab independence versus um, versus like the U.S. or or colonialism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like the col- the col- the colonizer versus the colonized. That's that's his his underlying yeah. dialectic. Uh, which, like you know, I kind of I kind of really uh, find to be somewhat uh, flawed, for a lack of you know a uh, better term. Insofar as he he basically what he ends up doing without like, I guess without really intending it, is he flips Lenin's idea of imperialism being the highest form of capitalism on its head, where he sees capitalism as being the highest form of imperialism, which is what we should fight, instead of, like, you know, class struggle. It's just imperialism. It's just one... one. Like, and to be fair, okay, wow. the other the other thing about Aflaq that I should point out is that by the time he's, like, you know, articulating these thoughts in the 40s, the Arab world, um, and I'm talking here about Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Palestine, Iraq the Arabian Peninsula, um, and Egypt and Libya, um, hasn't been on like, you know, self, self-ruled, um, for over 600 years, I would say. 
So yep. you know, after after the Abbasids fell in Baghdad, um, the 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 Arab states collapsed into like various uh, sort of uh, uh, you know uh, fiefdoms by Turkic soldiers, and these Turkic soldiers were brought in as slaves, but they ended up forming these like sort of a military caste of their own um, and taking control. Uh, and then when the Fatimids fell in Egypt um, uh, to the Ayyubids and the Ayyubids fell, the Mamluks, who were the Turkic soldiers in Egypt, took over. So you had these 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 military dynasties taking over up until the Ottomans. And then the Ottomans, which are also Turks, uh, controlled the Middle East for like 400 years. So by the time of the 20th century, really, there hasn't been like, you know, Arabs deciding their own destiny um, since, you know, I would say the Abbasids, really. Yeah, I was just about to say, it's like, at some point as, as you were discussing this we we talked a couple episodes about or a couple episodes ago about kind of the rise of italian socialism with with mussolini and how uh that rose out of the like italian people not having like the identity after world war one and then after world war one like you said you have the fall of the ottomans and then you kind of have all these east these european powers moving in to like stake their claim and so materially like a flock's like reasoning as to like why imperialism is is in his eyes the primary contradiction like you said it's like uh capitalism is the highest form of imperialism instead of the other way around is is lenin kind of spelled it out um it absolutely makes material sense because like you said they they didn't have their own their own like home rule yeah, exactly. So in that in that sense, I definitely sympathize with him. I don't want to be too harsh on him, uh, but it is it is uh, interesting because in that in in doing that, he tends to avoid the the class question. So in terms of like you know confronting, uh, you know what what would happen if the imperialists went away, right? Uh, what, what would happen mm-hmm. to the large Assyrian landholders like the landlord elite? What would happen to the merchant elite? Um, he never really confronted that. He never really addressed that in any meaningful way. Um, and in fact, um, later on, when I go into the the, the New Guard Baathists forming a coup, they took Baathism to its radical conclusion in a way that Aflaq never did. And he got kicked out for it. There was an, an intra-Baathist sort of uh, battle between the Old Guard and the New Guard. Uh, mm-hmm. But I can get to that later. But yeah, it, it's Aflaq sort of stopped short of... of uh, articulating a sort of yeah, so imperialism is bad, and then once we're independent, there has to be sort of class struggle. He never really went past that. It's it's and this is something that I was saying to Dave before we kind of went live uh, as well. Is you have, uh, of course, like imperialism is the primary contradiction. Like return, kind of the country's like industry and and its land to like the country. And then you have someone like Kwame Nkrumah with with Ghana who said that once you once we control our own resources and our manufacturing like for like ourselves, we will keep in mind like socialism and that class question, and we will work toward the dictatorship of the proletariat. Mm-hmm. Whereas once you seize that, once you you seize the means, uh, you seize the production for yourself, you seize the land for yourself. Like you said, there it's like, what's the next step to go from here? And to reflect on that, the and I, this might be getting a little ahead of ourselves, but like the the kind of like 
policies, I guess, and ideas of of a person like like Bashar al-Assad also make significantly more sense. I think. Yeah, well, I mean, it's all, it's also important to understand that um, when 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 Aflaq was writing this in the forties uh, during the French mandatory period. Um, or the English, if you want to look at Egypt um, and uh, Jordan and Palestine and Iraq, um, th- the countries weren't industrialized. So there was no real like big working class to, to talk mm-hmm. of. So the idea of class struggle was very hard to, to perceive because, first of all, because there was no like industrial base. There was, there was hardly any industrialization. Um, and most of the country was like rural peasants, like, you know, farm work. And the second part is that what what national bourgeoisie that did exist? What what uh, middle like you know burgeoning uh, middle class this, this 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 small class of bourgeoisie were more interested in collaborating with the imperialists than with you know developing an industrial base. Like the bourgeoisie weren't doing the job that the their their position as a class historically you know asked of them. Instead of like you know mm-hmm. developing the industry as the bourgeoisie of the West did, they were much more interested in keeping the countries underdeveloped while they just you know, sold off the country to the highest bidders, um, whether it was collaborating with the English or the French. So in that sense, I can understand Aflaq seeing his imperialism as the biggest threat because he saw the, those collaborators as as just another, you know, arm of the imperialist um, organ instead of like, you know, a separate class entity as capitalists. Yeah, for sure. Because you have like the, the upspringing of industry, like the mines, uh, like cobalt mines in say the Congo. But then you would have, they'd say, this is a, a big resource of ours. Like we can, we can secure power through this and like build, uh, like you said, out of like the kind of agrarian society we've been like condemned to I, and seize that. Oh, At, go ahead, Dave. Like as the, so a question I have too is like as the, as uh, the Bathist party became in the, uh, came more into power across, across the Arab world, was there much of like what, so what was like the handling of of because like Chris was kind of going into is like the the handling of the productive forces like we talked about like because like for China for example with their like they use the class character of of the na- of the national bourgeoisie and the bourgeoisie to build productive forces you know they this is the Chinese style socialism into into building socialism to where Bathism as 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 Flax definition of it 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 varies away from Marx and Lenin it seems that they're like. Like when reading about about this, it's it's kind of hard to find like what outside from the land reform, what was like being done about like building up uh, productive forces, and how did like maybe um, certain leaders eventually go about building productive forces? Well, so to, that that's a good question because it, one of the one of the sort of um, uh, things that I haven't mentioned yet, but it was a sort of fundamental cornerstone to how Ba'athism ended up evolving was the 1947 uh, establishment of the State of Israel and then the 1948 war between the Arab states and Israel and the sort of catastrophe that, that unfolded, like, you know, the, 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 in Arabic, that, that, that war, that thing is called the Nakba, which means a catastrophe. It's so seared into Arab mind that it's not, like, there is no specific, it's just the catastrophe, capital C catastrophe. Because you know, the Arab armies were humiliated, um, whereas the Arab elites were much more interested in, like, you know, uh, jostling one another for power than confronting the Israeli state. And meanwhile, you have, like, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians being expelled um, and then being used as pawns by these uh, this sort of, like, 
He's, I mean, at this point, by the way, the, the Arab regimes were all like sclerotic monarchies. So you had monarchies in Jordan, Iraq, and Egypt, and mm-hmm. uh, a sort of very, very sclerotic republic in Syria. Um, and, you know, he, a lot of Arabs saw this as, as like, it was more of a period of reflection. And the blame was precisely on these, these monarchies and this, this ruling elite. So in terms of the, the, the driving force of the productive forces, when, when Ba'ath came into power um, in uh, Syria in 47, um, well, they, they came into power in, officially in 61 after the collapse of the UAR. Um, and then when you had Nasser in Egypt and Qaddafi and, and uh, Abdul Karim uh, in uh, Iraq, uh, the, the biggest driving force for all of these countries was the military. They used so instead of having a national bourgeoisie as a class to drive industry, it was the military. The, mili- the military became the bourgeoisie. It's really it's there's a li- book called Military Inc. Um, inside Pakistan's military economy, and it's about you know Pakistan and the military econ- economy there. But a lot a lot of it is a big big like you know copycat of Egypt, like mm-hmm. like. The Pakistan's relationship with its military is the same as Egypt with its military and Syria for a long time with its military um, and Iraq up until Saddam with its military. So the, the military became both like, you know, it, it's weird because I was I remember once telling my friend that countries like Egypt and Pakistan, instead of being states with the military, they became militaries with the state. So like you had this this push by the military to industrialize the country. And to do that, they basically just nationalized everything under themselves. And then pushed uh, the productive forces to where they saw was important for for the country, but largely through their own class interest. That's that's really interesting because you see, like in in other like socialist countries, uh, uh, you have like with China with the People's Liberation Army, and then with the DPRK, you see that that the kind of like military originally forms, of course, uh, like as in Marxist Leninist state, like as a vanguard, as a way to protect, uh, the, like the nation, and then not only like abroad or from like invaders or, or imperialists, do so they do this protection, but they also protect the people like through uh, infrastructure in in like create like building up like the resources, like like building that industry, but it is it's used as like an apparatus of the people as opposed to like the military is building up these these kind of... Uh, yeah, there's a huge difference between, like, the PLA yeah. in China versus, like, the United States military versus, like, whether you're doing an imperialism or you're doing, like, community projects. And so, which not to say that it's what or, the military or, under different countries were doing, yeah, but, like, if, using that as, as, as a force is, you know, can be, like, it's it's been relevant in Marxism, you know, mm-hmm. in, in other... Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, no, I absolutely agree, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, sorry, go on. No, go ahead. <laughs> no, I just, I just wanted to say that, like, what, what's interesting about this is it ended up, and we'll see this in the 60s um, and the 70s, um, the problem with that approach in the Middle East is it ended up establishing the military as the ruling elite with, a, with like, like, the class characteristics of the military became the bourgeois class characteristics. So instead mm-hmm. of having a military as a sort of, like, the PLA, like, like you know, an organ that protects the revolution as such, it became uh, an organ that owned land, it owned factories. It owned, like, basically, you could buy products that were made by, by corporations and groups that were basically just fronts for the military in Egypt and Syria. And 
that having that meant that the military had its own class interest and that class interest directly you know conflicted with uh workers and you know with with peasants and with uh uh people who recre- you know, sell their it recreated class struggle yeah yeah, yeah. Say, it's say they recreated the principal contradiction yeah yeah and it's really depressing because i i whether whether they did that intentionally or not is arguable i mean Personally, I have a much more cynical view of some of the figures here, like like Nasser and and uh, the the Baathists, because one of the first thing Nasser did in Egypt was purge the communists. Like he he went after mm-hmm. the left way before he went after the Islamists, because he saw the threats from the left flank as being a lot more serious initially. Um, so in that sense, uh, I have very little uh, sympathy for people like Nasser and the Baathists and. Uh, Gaddafi and uh, the Baths in Iraq, because you know they were they were significantly anti-left in that way, uh, but also uh, they were they were trying to hold off Islamists as well, which was the other you know faction that was opposing them. Um, and in, in doing both those things, they ended up you know recreating the class struggle by owning land, owning property, um, basically turning private property into military property. All right. Um, so from there, I'm trying to find where, where you are, Dave, in the notes, because, oh, there you are. So I guess, uh, from, like from there, now that we, we have like a really nice comprehensive look at, uh, at like, for what you can get 45 minutes into a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all th- all things considered, like this is a crash course, but I feel I feel like uh, Amr is taking us on a on a very nice crash course. Um, yeah, it's very nice, but very fast. Like I'm trying not to pause too much and like get too into the weeds on on certain things and certain issues. Now, get into the weeds all you want. Like I said, this is like our second to last episode for before a long break. So, um, okay, fair enough. I mean, what do you guys want? <laughs> where yeah, do you want to go? Ten hours. Here? So I guess so since you you covered the the Bathists um I guess kind of the the other real big building block and we we've talked about him here and there throughout this is, is uh, Nasser in Egypt um I guess what are kind of and and like I feel like when we were researching like capital A Arab socialism you uh everything always came back to Nasser. It felt like, like without him, like, like it felt like he was mentioned even more than, than, than the Baathists really. Yeah. I mean, Nasser is in many ways, like, you know, have, have you guys heard about how Hegel described Napoleon as like a world historical figure? Yeah. Yeah. Sort of like history distilled into one person. And Nasser was that for the Middle East. And it's really, really hard to understate how, how significant he was in in changing the entire fabric of the Middle East, um, and I don't I don't even know if he actually intended to to affect it that much, but it's a sort of like larger than life character that end up like being a, a a sort of even his ghosts haunts the Middle East even today. Like like people identify along pro Nasser anti Nasser lines, mm-hmm. and a lot of what's happening now is a result of what the decisions made during Nasser's time. And you know he was he was fueled by anti-colonial sentiments. He was born um, during the the Egyptian Revolution of 1919. Um, he he was born to an urban proletariat family, 
they moved around from town to town. His dad was a post-silk clerk worker. Um, and uh, in his youth, uh, actually, interestingly enough, so uh, he joined the military later on, but in his youth, he was linked with the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, a lot of people, you know, a lot of Nasserists would deny that, but it was there is some very, very credible uh, proof that he was part, at least, at least like, you know, cooperating with the Muslim Brotherhood, even though there are more serious claims that he was genuinely part of the Muslim Brotherhood's military wing, the Tamlim al-Khas, mm-hmm. which, uh, to be fair to him, I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood was the biggest vehicle for anti-British uh, sentiments in Egypt at the time. Um, it was them and the communists. And, you know, I guess it's easy to to fall in with the Muslim Brotherhood over the communists because was- the communists... That- Sorry, go on. I was just say real quick was the uh, was the Muslim, was the Muslim Brotherhood the ones who who shot at him and missed him in a speech and then he kept yes. going during the speech <laughs> and, yes. was, and said some like incredible shit. I, it, yeah, um, he was like, if they could they could kill me, but I will give my soul to the nation. You know, he was he was a great orator. I have to admit, like, like there's few people who could like who have the same charisma he had, and that's one of the biggest problems of Nasser too is that he ended up taking so much space during this revolutionary period that his untimely death in 1970 uh, and the succession of Anwar al-Sadat meant that there was no, there was no underlying uh, base to propel this revolution further because it was so distilled to Nasser that his demise, there was no one to replace him. You know, there was no, no, no one or group to replace him. I, I hate using this, especially in the context of, of any sort of like socialism, but it feels like, maybe if we stretch it like this might be like the appropriate place to say like the cult of personality almost oh absolutely absolutely i do i mean he, I do, he resigned very, and then they called him back right like didn't yeah after after, he, after the disaster in 67 the 67 yeah. war he resigned and then yeah yeah no i mean again i'm like you guys i don't i don't like the term cult of personality because nine times out of ten the person the person who uses it is using it very disingenuously it's yeah. like uh, look look at those Chinese with their cult of personality. And it's like, hmm, yeah, Mount Rushmore. Definitely not a cult of personality there. <laughs> it's like, stop. You're talking about my sweet boy Xi Jinping, and we will not tolerate that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, but but yeah, if there, was, was, if there ever was a single figure that sort of became larger than life, it's Nasser in Egypt. And this this was definitely an issue because by the time he died, there was just no, no capable movement that sort of sustained him. There was no base. There was no mass popular base that, that could propel the movement further because he, he made decisions of, on his own. Like as far as Nasser's model of governance was, it was governing by consent, not by, uh, you know, like, you know, collaboration or any like real political process. And, you know, it was consent. Like, the people overall did support Nasser. They loved him. But the lack, like, him not, I guess, not being able to and not willing to to create a class consciousness, to create a political consciousness, to, to like, you know, try and mobilize the people. And that's something that Gaddafi ended up doing really well, I think, up until, you know, the 2011 uh, issues. Um, like, you know, he, Gaddafi established what he would call basic popular congresses. Uh, mm-hmm. In which, like, like your neighborhood, your block of people, you and your block of people would get together, and you would debate every political issue in the country, and then you would have the decision via, like, you know, the annual general congress of the of the people's congresses, 
to to affect political change. Now, how much of that um, ended up actually affecting the country is arguable. Uh, some people say less, some people say more. But to that point, Gaddafi did more to to try and inculcate the people with direct political democracy than Nasser ever did. So the, the only <laughs> the only thing I did want to point out is that Nasser, like like I said earlier, Nasser's initial. So when when Nasser did the coup, so. Nasser initially was, you know, he cooperated with the Muslim Brotherhood at some point. We know that in 1948, mm-hmm. he was a military officer in the army, and he was tra- trapped in the Fallujah pocket. No, not that Fallujah in Iraq. It's another Fallujah in Palestine. <laughs> uh, yes, I know. It's confusing. It's kind of like how there's like many, many cities with the same name in America. Um, so this, like this, his experiences in the war uh, made him very disillusioned with the Egyptian monarchy and the the sort of ruling elite. So he formed a free officer group, which was a secret group within the military. Um, they worked with the Muslim Brotherhood, but he tried to distance himself from them, uh, largely because he saw them as somewhat defunct. Um, in 1952, the free officers overthrow the king um, and, you know, through a coup. Uh... <coughs> Excuse me one second. Yeah, it takes time. <clears throat> Ah, sorry. All good? Uh, yeah. So um, the free officers organize a coup, and they kick out the king, and they establish a republic. Initially, uh, interestingly enough, Nasser doesn't take control. The republic is under um, the president, who was the general of the free officers, the highest-ranking member, Muhammad Najib. But everyone knew that the driving engine behind the coup was Nasser. Like, even though he had no official title, he was the, the man, like, capital M, man. Um, so... His first order of business really was to purge the communists, which again, you know, like he he worked with the Muslim Brotherhood to purge the communists first. Like like when the free officers turned left and fought the left before they turned right. Um, mm-hmm. And this is this is said by people across the spectrum. The Muslim Brotherhoods admit they 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 were happy with Nasser when he was targeting the the so called atheist communists. Um, the even one of Nasser's close friends in the free officer corps. Uh, uh, Colonel Lieutenant uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Khalid Muhaddin, uh, who was one of Nasser's best friends, was a communist. He was a Marxist, and he was he he avoided being purged. Uh, so, like because of his friendship with Nasser, but he ended up being like thrown about uh, in very like politically uh, impotent positions. Like he was sent to be an ambassador, I think, first to to the Soviet Union and then to some European countries, without really having political power back home. And the communists were purged. They were sent to prison. They were sent to prison camps. Um, and then after he does that, he turns against the Muslim Brotherhood because the Muslim Brotherhood basically sit down with him and they're like, right, now that you've, con- you've controlled the government, we want to have a partnership between us and you. And he's like, the fuck you will. Like, like you're junior partners in this. You can't, you're not the same level as us uh, because we took all the risks with a coup. And uh, they didn't like that. So th- this, this split happened. And um, of course, uh, as like you said, like you mentioned, the split sort of culminated with the assassination attempt on Nasser. Um, what's interesting is that a lot of like you know, I'm reading this book. It's called uh, "Making uh, the Arab World: Nasser, Fatwa, and Making of the Middle East." Um, it a lot of a lot of senior Muslim Brotherhood members seem to think that the assassination attempt was very like you know disorganized. It wasn't something that was authorized by by the Muslim Brotherhood sort of you know central commanding organs. It was something that very, very radical elements within the Muslim Brotherhood did on their own. 
whether that's true or not, and whether Nasser knew of it beforehand or not, um, again, a lot of a lot of speculation there. We don't have many answers, but you know, he fails and he he does the whole like, you know, you can you can kill me and I will give my soul to Egypt. Uh and you know, I belong to Egypt. Uh what does he say? Oh yeah, my countrymen, my blood spills for you and for Egypt. I will live for your sake and die for the sake of your freedom and honor. So, you know I mean, yeah, that's pretty badass to just get shot at and immediately like that. I mean, to be there to witness that would be, I mean, that is, like you said, he's very charismatic and, you know, that, that definitely played a part in his popularity as well as his, you know, the, the, his stand of, of nationalism and, and, and anti-imperialism. And, and that's actually where I want to ask, like, you know, you mentioned about his, he first purged the communists, but he often, uh, Nasser and not others, but especially him, did like work with the Soviets and Khrushchev. There's actually an antidote that I read where Khrushchev asked Nasser about why did you purge the communists? And Nasser like, isn't deeply offended and like, stay out of our affairs. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but they did, yeah, yeah. but the Soviet union did like seemingly there was working together. It seemed he worked together more with the Eastern Bloc. A lot of the Arab socialists did then worked with the Eastern Bloc more so than they did with, with the United States government and the West for good reason, though there was a lot of like, Tensions where it would work. Uh, uh, what did I? Who uh, positive neutralism is is the term yes. that? Yeah, that, I mean, uh, sorry, go on. No, I'll just say that that was the term that they that they followed. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, so I think I think what's interesting is that so one of the lesser known things about Nasser is like everyone sees Nasser as an anti-imperialist figure. To be fair, that is right. But it, when he first took over in '52, um, the likes of Kermit Roosevelt over in the CIA. During, I think this was during um, Eisenhower's. No, this was before Eisenhower. Uh, who was who was president in in fifty two? Um, I couldn't. Whoever tell you. was. <laughs> let me let was me Google this because this is gonna bother me. Uh, whoever was U.S. president in nineteen fifty two? Well, nineteen fifty two was an election year, so before that it was, uh, I believe Truman. Truman, um, yeah, Truman, and then yeah. I think Eisenhower, yeah. Yeah, so Man. when Truman was in charge, you had the guys like uh, Kermit Roosevelt and the CIA. And they saw Nasser as someone they can work with. They saw his purging of the communists as like something that is as a sign that you can work with this person. Um, but then when when Eisenhower came in, he basically handed off all of foreign policy to the Dallas brothers, who are like grade A psychopath, like like gen- Oh like, yes, I'm, they I'm, are. Like like a, a, a special breed of psychopath. Like like this is this is when U.S. foreign policy went from like generic alcoholic, uh, you know, bureaucrat to like guys who jack off in coffins in Yale for like various hazing uh, rituals or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Dulles brothers, like all of the instability. Uh, I mean, of course you have like United Fruit Company, but without like the Dulles brothers, like the, the oh, landscape yeah. of South America in, in, and even, even Asia as well is just so different. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, and again, the Middle East, like a lot of it comes down to Dallas Brothers because, again, America initially thought they could work with Nasser and he was open to working with them. He was he was never as anti-America as he became later. Um, what ended up happening was the Dallas Brothers took control and they had a very simplistic worldview where if you're either with us or against us, like, you know, when it comes to the Cold War. So like mm-hmm. Nasser's positive neutralism of like working with both didn't fly in the Pentagon. It didn't fly uh, in Langley and the state department. So for 
for the Dallas part, there is him him not being wholeheartedly part of the the pro America camp, but that he was an enemy. So they you know they prevented him from buying um, arms from the U S. They basically just kept you know pushing him out of the, the American sphere. So his his initial approach to the Soviet Union was one of you know be, basically being forced to go to the Soviet Union, and they were more than happy to work with him. Um, the problem with the Soviet Union though is that post Stalin really. The, the the ruling class of the Soviet Union, the sort of the Soviet uh, the, the party, was very conservative in its foreign policy. They weren't mm-hmm. as interested in backing their allies as, say, the Americans were, which is like really sad, really, because you know you had people like Nasser who who were uh, you know they needed they needed a superpower on their on their side, and the Soviets were more interested in keeping stability at home and a sort of buffer zone in Central Asia and Eastern the Eastern Bloc. Uh, and they weren't as interested in events in South America or, or uh, the Middle East or, or Sub-Saharan Africa, for example. So <clears throat> that that covers that. And to move, I actually want to keep, I want to keep moving this forward. Thank you so much. This is like there's so much information happening at once. Um, yeah, no worries. Go- I mean, if you want to talk about the economics, it's it's basic nationalization. Like Nasser nationalized everything. His land reform was. Um, 200 yep. fedan to every family. So a fedan is like an acre. So 200 acres to every family, 300 acres to families with two plus children. Uh, but land reform really never went that far because it was very difficult to enforce. There was uh, not sort of authority didn't extend well into the rural areas. Um, and, you know, Egyptian nationalism um, was seen as key, even though Nasser himself was like, you know, he, he espoused some sort of pan-Arabism. It was more like the pan-Arabism as you think of like the EU, the European Union. Than really what singular Arab national uh, nation state that makes sense. And it's my understanding too that a lot of the land reforms were repealed in some way from from uh, from his successor. That, oh yeah, as uh, soon as he died, yeah. everything went back. So Sadat pursued, and where Sadat pursued what he called infitah policies. Infitah literally just means opening up, which was basically just liberalization. So land reform was like you know scaled back. The public sector was gutted. Um, various austerity programs were implemented, and uh, you know, basically all of the Nasser welfare state was uh, became a, a skeleton, a, a shell of itself, really. A big so the big thing that I that I want to talk about next there, um, and, and and learn more about is something that's incredibly important. Um, was the the UAR, the United Arab Republic, uh, between Syria and Egypt? Um, to base like what what was it and what. How was it important in in building, um, like building Arab solidarity and fighting the U.S. and how did it and what led to its ultimate fall or failing? Okay, so when when Aflaq envisioned a Baathism, he envisioned Baathism as as a very very dis, like you know, Arab the Arab people should have one nation state, like call it Arabia. Let's say it's called Arabia, and that Arab state would extend from Morocco in the west to the Gulf in the east. And from Yemen in the south to Syria in the north, and you know this this was a very like you know cohesive sort of supposed to be a cohesive entity um, of one singular political union. And to that end, when you look at Baathist like the Baathist Party, there was there were two there are two organs to a Baathist Party: what's called regional command and what's called uh, national command. And unlike what you would imagine, they're flipped uh, upside down. So. You would imagine regional command to be the one that's in charge of the Middle East and national command to be in charge of like Syria, Iraq. Each, each country had its own national command, right? Now, 
the the funny thing is that it's the opposite because because uh, a flock saw the Middle East as one like Arab country. National command was the, the the provisional government of the Arab, like you know, the, the the provisional Arab country, and then regional commands. Each country was supposed to have its own regional command, like Iraq regional command, Syria regional command. Um, and by the way, the Syria and Iraqi regional commands would end up like being bitter enemies, uh, and each one would end up having its own national command with its own claim on being the exclusive and sole Baathist, like legitimate Baathist party, and the others are like fake or whatever. Um, but to go back to the UAR, the, this difference between Nasser seeing Arab unity as being strictly like, you know, um, like, you know, nationalism comes first. So like Egyptian nationalism came first before pan-Arabism, whereas the Baathists saw pan-Arabism as the, the, the goal. Like we all have to have an Arab country. So in, in 58, so Syria is, uh, you know, Thomas Friedman in the New York Times would say that Syria is a land of contrast because he's an idiot. Um, but if anything, Syria is <laughs> a land of coups. Uh, it's a land of like every 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 so years, like at least one or two coups because just we love we love coups so much, don't we, folks? You love to see it. Um, <laughs> in in fifty eight, there was a coup that that overthrew the the uh, what was then a Tepid sort of republican government in Syria. And, and then the, the officer that took charge proposed uh, to Egypt a political union, the United Arab Republic, in 58. Nasser did not want that. He was very, very hesitant about the UAR because he, thought, he saw that, you know, nas- like, you know con- like local nationalism should be the, the building block of this, this pan-Arabism and not a unified country. But he was basically offered an ultimatum, like at a, you know, metaphorical gunpoint. And it was either a UAR or Syria would descend into chaos as the ruling class, uh, you know, uh, fought each other. Because this, uh, by the time of 58, they've had, I think, like four coups in a decade. Um, so and, and Nasser, as much as he was very skeptical of this idea, he saw Syria as a, vi- like a stable Syria as a vital uh, uh, cog in the fight against Israel. Like, no, you can't fight Israel without a stable Syria and a stable Egypt. Those were the two key mm-hmm. ingredients to, to a, a united front against Israel. Um, and this was as true uh, uh, during Salah al-Din's time against the Crusaders as it was now. So Nasser begrudgingly accepted this UAR, even though he, he was very hesitant. But then the problem was that when he accepted it, he, he basically absorbed it into the Egyptian political structure. So for example, when Nasser was in control of Egypt, he banned all political parties. The only party that was allowed was the Liberation Rally, which was his sort of like organ to like, you know, direct the revolution. But it was a very, very mm-hmm. like, you know, feeble party. It didn't have any uh, real party power. It was more than more just a, a sort of a fig leaf of, of a party. Um, and when Syria got absorbed, he ended up banning all political parties there, too. And the Ba'athists accepted that because they they saw that as a, as a sacrifice for the United Arab uh, Republic. But... A lot of Ba'athists were also very resentful of it. So there was a lot of intra-Ba'athist fighting over this. Uh, the ones that accepted it, who were in, in control, like Aflaq, uh, were being resented by, by the, uh, like, you know, those under them, like Assad, uh, Assad Sr., uh, Hafez al-Assad, um, Salah Jadid, these, these what would later become known as neo-Ba'athists, who were, who, who were like Nasser. They saw, they saw national um, identity via Syria, Egypt, Iraq as being more more uh of a cornerstone than than pan-arabism um mm-hmm. and then the other issue was that 
Nasser basically just sidelined all of the Syrian uh, ruling elite, Syrian certain uh, uh, leaders. He ended up just, you know, when, 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 the, when the Syrians meshed with the Egyptians, they thought they'd have a seat at the table, an equal seat at the table. But for Nasser, he saw himself as a singular leader. Um, everyone else was to take a back, back uh, seat to him. Which, which was what got him into trouble with the Muslim Brotherhood in the first place because they wanted to be equals and he ended up going to war with them and purging them. And now the Ba'athists thought they were going to have an equal say and he had absolutely no intention of doing that. So the three years from 58 to 61 when you had the UAR, it was pretty much you know doomed to fail. The writing was on the wall from the beginning because there was just so much conflict between you know Nasser and the leadership uh, within Ba'athists uh, that... You know, in 50, 51 or 52, I believe, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, no, 61, sorry. It was the 58 was when they unified. Uh, 58 is when they unified. And then 61 or 62, uh, Syria had another coup, uh, which was basically 61. It was a coup by the officers who were disgruntled with this, this, this status quo of Nasser basically controlling Syria, that they overthrew the, um, the, the governor that Nasser had uh, appointed to Syria and restored the Syrian civilian government. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you have... That is exhausting. I mean, it, it, and that was wow. such a short-lived, just you know, three years. And I believe at this time now, I, I may have mis- misread some, but I believe at this time Iraq was also considered to possibly end up being a part, but there was tensions between Nasser and the current leader at the time was is uh, Kasim or... Yes, awesome. Yeah, Abdel Karim Qasim. Yeah, oh, they hated each other. Qasim, Qasim and uh, 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 Nasser despised each other. Um, it, it, Iraq was, was like, you know, it was uh, mooted as part of the, 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 the UAR, but uh, first of all, Qasim rejected that out of hand. And second of all, uh, Iraq wasn't seen as vital to the UAR as Syria would have been because Nasser wanted to stabilize Syria as a united front against Israel, whereas Iraq was not bordering Israel. It was farther out. It wasn't as, as you know, as uh, close to Egypt as Syria was. Um, and at the time when, when Abdul Karim Qasim took power, he was a nationalist, but he wasn't a member of Ba'ath himself. He basically took power um, as a sort of, uh, how do you say, a sort of, uh, uh, what's the word for it? Like a compromise candidate. That's the word. He was a compromise or... Not not a compromise in the sense that he was like you know pushed into leadership. He basically he took advantage of the conflict between the communists and the Baathists in Iraq, and he mm-hmm. became the sort of middle between the two. And then you know when the Baathists overthrew him, uh, they purged the communists. So that's yeah. kind of like a depressing end to that story. But so depressing uh, that that comes up a lot in this. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Baathists the Baathists uh, in Iraq are. Like they're really bad as far as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, they had people like Saddam in there from the beginning that were. I was just not as about much... to bring up Saddam. <laughs> oh, go on. Well, go on then. Yeah, I was about to. I was about to ask. Uh, that's uh, for probably a lot of our listenership. Uh, that's probably the biggest uh, kind of bugaboo. The biggest name when you when you talk about Baathism is, is Saddam Hussein. And kind of, uh, can you maybe real give a quick rundown about like how, because you said he was in there from the jump, is kind of what, 
how in like each of these kind of like the Bothus parties were had their own sort of uh, uh I suppose takes on 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 well, Bothism. What, what I'll say it adds that I think in here we go on Chris is the yeah. fact that like Saddam Hussein is often like given as as to the West as the representative of the Bathist Party because he was a member of the Bathist Party mm-hmm. and the, you know the quote unquote the biggest enemy of of the U.S. Um, during the uh, early two thousands. So like um, Chris, I don't know if you wanted to ask more about like just what, what I was what's... going to ask kind of the intricacies of maybe the the Iraqi Baath uh, Party and also kind of uh, a real quick like the rise of Saddam because I'm pretty sure and I I could be wrong there's a lot of moving parts uh in in the Arab world throughout uh the 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 mid midpoint and later 20th century as we've seen but um uh kind of I'm pretty sure that the CIA is at least partially responsible for uh Saddam taking power and and also like from there can we can we kind of explore the the religious divide. And I know that we talked about that uh, off mic and kind of like what, uh, like, yeah, that is an important part in all of this is the, at least I, from what I've, from what I've read is that there is like a religious wing of, of Arab socialism or an Islamic wing versus a um, secular. Yeah. So, I mean, so Iraq is very complicated because its demographics are so different from the rest of the Middle East where you have mm-hmm. a roughly like, okay, so the Shia are the majority, but not by much. So you have Shia majority in the south, uh, near Basra, Najaf, and Karbala. You have a Sunni minority in the, in the middle, upper middle area, where like centered around Mosul. And then you have Kurds in the north. And Kurds, Kurds are Muslim too, but they're seen as separate entities to the Sunni-Shia divide uh, because they're more... They're more aligned with their like a sort of ethno nationalism than with um, either sect um, in terms of the religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what end up happening is that you know you had you had uh, Qasim in power up until sixty three in February sixty three when the Baathists basically kicked him out and executed him, uh, and then you had uh, Ahmed Hassan al Bakr who was a general who was you know the, the Baathist leader at the time. They took power. Um, and then you had like coup after coup where various like, you know, military figures would overthrow their uh, predecessors. And, and at some point they lose power, they gain power. Um, I'm, again, I'm, I'm speeding through this because I want to get to the part where like it's very, gets becomes very interesting. Um, Saddam at that point in the, in the 60s and the 70s, uh, he, he's part of the Ba'ath, but he sort of uh, initially when he overthrows in 68, he participates in a coup. Which overthrows one one uh, Baathist leader by another. Uh, so he was part of Ahmed Hassan al Bakr's crew, um, and then he gets you know he gets rewarded for his loyalty um, to be given become deputy chairman of the Revolutionary Command Council um, of the Baathist Party in Iraq, and mm-hmm. that's that's sort of like his stepping stone into like you know rising to power. And then uh, in in this time he's. He's like Saddam. Saddam is a very self-centered figure by all accounts. Like he wasn't as interested in like you know ideology insofar as it could like mobilize people. Like you know ideology as a mobilizing force, so much as it could serve him as an individual. And again, I don't want to go into the cult of personality thing because uh, it's a very loaded term. But if there was ever one person who I genuinely despise, it's Saddam. Like, like I I want I want him to come back to life so I could throttle him with my bare hands. <laughs> uh, yeah he just he's just he he's such a 
a repulsive figure in so many ways. And then, you know, when he became, he kept like, you know, rising in the, in the, in the revolutionary command council and the army. So when he became a general in the army, uh, he was like Al-Bakr, the guy who he put in power in the coup is still, is still in like, you know, in power, but he becomes like, you know, he's aging and Saddam is still young. So he's still like, you know, able to be more of a front facing figure for the party. Uh, and then, you know, in 79, when uh, uh, al-Bakr was trying to become friendly with Syria. Oh, and by the way, um, after, so Syria at this point, Syria has its own like coups and counter coups. But in 66, Salah Jadid leads a coup against uh, the Ba'athist government. He's also a Ba'athist. And they basically end up kicking Aflaq out. Aflaq, who by the way, was the one who founded Ba'ath, is exiled from Syria because he's seen as not radical enough. Um, and even now, when you go to Syria, they'll tell you that Zaki al-Arsuzi is the guy who founded Ba'ath, not Aflaq. And that, mm. there's a whole history between those two people, by the way. Huh. Yeah, because uh, Arsuzi was the first person to establish a party known as Ba'ath, but then Aflaq basically copied him and made his own party called Ba'ath and absorbed Arsuzi's uh, without taking Arsuzi himself. And Arsuzi, until his dying breath, claimed that Aflaq did this as a sort of uh, what's the term? Like a honeypot? Like, like he was, yeah, he was yeah. paid, at, yeah, to to absorb, uh, like you know, people who would otherwise support Arsuzi into what he saw as as an impotent organization. Um, so when sixty six comes along and the neo Baathistic power, they kick Aflaq out. And where does he go? He goes to Iraq, and he becomes best friends with the Iraqi Baathists and hostile enemies with the Syrian Baathists. So this Syria Iraq rivalry becomes uh, important because. Saddam basically sees al-Bakr's uh, uh, friendliness with Syria um, and potential unification as, as, as a threat to him, you know, becoming the, the leader of uh, Iraq. Um, he, he organizes a coup and he kicks uh, al-Bakr out and takes control. And, you know, there's a large, uh, a, credible, a credible claim that, you know, the CIA helped them because they were not interested in Iraq becoming friendly with Syria. Because Syria at that point was um, anti-American, for lack of a better term. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so with, with at this time, Syria is under Hafez al-Assad, by the way. Um, Jadid was overthrown in what was called the Corrective Revolution in 1970. And Hafez al-Assad took power. And that was the last coup in, the last successful coup in Syria, I should say. Uh, so the Assads have, have been in power since. But uh, Saddam saw the, the, that as a potential threat. So he kicks out Bakr, takes power along with the CIA's help. And there, there is claims, by the way, that the CIA basically gave him a list of communists to to purge as soon as he took power. God fucking uh, damn it! Of course they did. <laughs> I know it's yeah. I, to to another testament against the Dom um, is I believe again I think this is from the the CIA or whoever captured him. So, but with a grain of salt. But he uh, apparently like when they captured they captured him like the only thing they could really like get out about him or get out from him was him like trying to like discuss his money and like his like where his money was and like anytime he tried to ask him about his his like what he'd done recently or anything about the government or his way of running things it was constantly back to like his money his status his his where yeah exactly yeah you know he was yeah and by the way if if anyone was worth some saddam it was his two sons uh they were they were really uh, something uh, special. Uday and Qusay. Uh Uday, by the way, uh, has has a very uh, uh, he was the friendly neighborhood rapist. He was known as the rapist of Baghdad, and you could you Jesus. could figure out why. Yeah, 
Jesus uh, Christ. He was, he was a psychopath. Uh, and I'm not talking like, again, you know, rape is bad. I'm not saying rape isn't bad. I'm talking like rape with like, you know, uh, he would he would go into people's weddings and take the, the basically practice prima nocte uh, with the with the bride, um, torture them with acid, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, Saddam was well aware of this and didn't much care. Um, he that is like serial killer, like true that, kind. That is what that. Yeah, shit. That's, yeah. Oof. Oh yeah, yeah. It's very true detective esque. It's very like what would happen if we set true detective in like nineteen eighties Iraq. Um, and speaking of the eighties, one of the other friendly things about Saddam is how he was the CIA's best friend during the Iran Iraq War. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, if anything, shows you how how. Saddam wasn't enemy number one to America, as as history would suggest. Like later, uh, he was he was the, the ally for America against Khomeini's Iran. And yeah, this, this comes yeah, this comes back to the religious divide that I was going to mention. Um, this was this was uh, basically it's, it's really hilarious when you look at the Wikipedia article for the Iran Iraq War, looking at who is supporting who, like the the, the table that shows uh, who supports like which country support which side. Like, it's fucking hilarious. So you have, like, Iraq. So you have the the people that support Iraq. You have the Soviet Union, uh, the U.S., uh, France, the U.K., Germany, uh, fucking, like, literally just everyone uh, in the world. And then you have Iran, and it's like, uh, who supported Iran? Let's see. Uh, China, Libya, North Korea, uh, South Yemen, which is a Marxist-Leninist country at the time, uh, Syria. And weirdly enough, Israel. What the fuck? Wait. <laughs> what? Yeah. At the time, at the time, Israel saw Saddam as more of a threat than the Iran because Iran had just gone through a revolution, right? In 79, the Shah was overthrown. You have Ayatollah Khomeini taking power and like the, the Ayatollahs, the, the establishment of the Islamic Republic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, the there was there was def- there was a lot of uh, analysis that Iran was militarily weak at this point. There was very unstable. It's what prompted Saddam to invade. He thought that you know post revolution Iran would be so fragile that it would be like it would, he 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 even boasted that it would take him two weeks to to steamroll from the border to Tehran. Um, the famous last words there because he ended up fighting for an entire week in the border town of Khuzestan and Khuramshar, uh, which was like it became a brutal like literally just. House by house, block by block, street by street, Iranian civilians, uh, children, old men fighting with sticks, with knives, with stones to like you know hold the Iraqi army off for the until, for long enough for the Iranian military to mobilize a defense and a counterattack. Uh, it was it was brutal, by the way. The Iranian like like I have nothing but respect for Iran after that because it, like like I said, you, you read the list of who's who who's supporting Iraq and then you see who's supporting Iran mm-hmm. and. Iran ended up like using things like human like wave attacks. Like they'd give kids, like the besieged kids, they'd give them a key and a Quran. And the, the key was supposed to be the key to heaven, like the gates of heaven. And they would yeah. like just charge across a field to clear the minds and like demoralize the Iraqi troops before the, the Islamic Republican Guard would, would arrive and like, you know, clear out the Iraqis. Gee. Right. They, they didn't have they didn't have any military support like like up until 79 the shah was the ally of the u.s which meant that yeah. all of the military was equipped with by the u.s so once the revolution took over the u.s wasn't willing to first of all it wasn't willing to sell weapons but also like what happens when when a u.s military plane breaks down 
what happens when a U.S. tank breaks down? They don't have the the parts to repair it. They yeah. don't have any. Yeah. So they were relying on all these countries and Israel because, again, like I said, at that time, Iraq had the largest army in the Middle East and the most technologically advanced. And Saddam kept talking about Palestine very selfishly. He was never interested in Palestinian liberation. He was more interested in just, you know, talking the talk. Uh, but Israel saw him as a threat. So they were supporting Iran against him. Um, and yeah, it was it was uh, a brutal war. And Saddam was arrogant. He was stupid. And he got um, a million uh, people dead over it. Gee, right. Ooh, all right. So moving on to to maybe a, oh, and, a... and he gassed the Iranian. That's what I mean. Just, just oh, to man. clarify, he, yeah. he used he used chemical gas against the Iranian yeah. population. Um, and the the gas was given to him by our friends in the CIA and Langley. So all the all the talk about the WMDs. Well, yeah, of course he had WMDs. You're the fucks who gave it to him. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it's kind of. Uh, um, uh, I'll, I'll say funny in, in whatever definition you want to use it as that every time gas is uh, gas or chemical warfare is used, it always uh, comes back to the states. Um, yeah, someone we supplied them somehow with it. Um, Fucking the yeah, Nazis, the Nazis, yeah, I think Monsanto or some kind of like U.S. Yeah, it's just constant that if there's gassing happening, it's the U.S. is like at oh, the heart of it. Yeah. Um. So moving on from from let's all right from someone. Who, from the worst to possibly one of the best, um, again, complicated figures, as many of these are, we, as, as Marxists, we critique. But moving on to, to possibly one of the biggest figures um, is, is Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. And um, if you want to kind of start there with, like, the Free Unionist Officers Movement and the overthrow of King Idris I and kind of, like, what Gaddafi did to really spin things and, and really put things in his own ideology with say the green book and mm-hmm. uh going from there and, and i think that that like you as, as you highlighted Omer, there's a uh uh a lot of like purging of, of communists and yes. and given i'm i'm not nearly as as knowledgeable on this as, as you are uh like we established way earlier some of the sources are real fucking hard to come by if uh if you don't speak uh anything more than english but um uh, I I believe that Gaddafi even was supported by the communists in in yes. Libya and and also yes. also abroad as well. So, yeah, I mean, Gaddafi was was a weird. He was a very syncretic figure. He, he in like yes, the communists in Libya were very supportive of Gaddafi. Uh, most of them, at least. Um, the the biggest the biggest opposition to Gaddafi in Libya were the Islamists, the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, uh, local branch, and other other Islamist factions because they saw him as being too radical. Um, and uh, his his view, and you know, as Marxists we critique, um, you know, uh, ruthless ruthless criticism of all that exists, as Marx said. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also like Gaddafi did so much to Libya, like he was so. Uh, he he advanced Libya from what was a very agrarian rural peasant economy into a, a national powerhouse of Africa that up until 2011 and the godforsaken uh, uh, Hillary Clinton uh, led invasion, uh, you know, you know, you could you could buy a slave for two hundred dollars in Libya now. So yeah, Jesus you know, Christ, yeah. there are open slave markets where you could just go and get like a slave for like two hundred bucks. 
Uh, so if you if you're thinking of what ways to use your your government your Biden check your fifteen stimulus check <laughs> oh god damn that is seven sleeves if you're interested that's real uh, social democracy <laughs> getting that stimulus check to buy a slave <laughs> yeah that, that's it, centrism that's real centrism that's right real there. Cent- <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's and what what's uh, like to a uh, real kind of quick departure it's it, it, when you examine these events. And and like how things have unfolded, uh, in in the Middle East, and and you hear a lot of talk of like the the refugee crises that that there is, especially like in Europe, I think maybe more so than the U.S. Um, it's like, do you re? Are you really like wondering why people are fleeing these countries? I mean, like you said, you had had Gaddafi pulled Libya into a significantly more modern economy with its own like productive forces uh, like you said it was a, a powerhouse for africa and then uh in with 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 uh, ultimately i guess his demise in, in in 2011 you in in the year of our lord 2021 like you said you can you can sell a fucking slave like no fucking wonder people are fleeing these countries like it's not cuz libya is was like inherently a shithole it's because the u.s destabilized yeah, the people it. who who murdered gaddafi were were actively funded by the ned yeah oh yeah 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 no uh well what did that fucking psychopath clinton say we came we saw he died like if if Jesus. there was a single shred of 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 uh justice in the world she'd be in a dock in the hague right now um but yeah, uh, he. Oh, by the way, I I would not recommend googling how Gaddafi died because it's a very brutal video. It's a very, very it is it is yeah. stomach turning. Yeah, um, he's he's a very very um syncretic figure. Like I said, he he organized the free union the free unionist officers movement, which basically was modeled after Nasser's free officers, and they overthrew King Idris the first in September first sixty nine. And King Idris was, again, this is another sclerotic monarchy with zero interest in developing its own country, uh, just more interested in pilfering the wealth for the few uh, elites to, like, you know, vacation in Europe and so on. Um, One of the first things he did was nationalize the oil, which Libya has a lot of, uh, which was really good because it provided a base of income to, to, you know, end up developing the entire country. And he also published the Green Book, which was his, like, you know, his ideology, basically, in a nutshell. And there were some good things and bad things in it. For example, uh, he he rejects bourgeois representative democracy as being undemocratic, which, you know, respect to my man over there. Yeah, for uh, sure. Yeah, he, he talks about, you know, democracy should be for the people and not an author- authority acting on their behalf. Um, he the, the one thing I want to say that he is uh, a bit syncretic about is that he doesn't see the world in class struggle either. Like, you know, he says, and I quote, quote, the political class system is the same as a party, tribal, or sectarian system, since a class dominates society in the same way that a party, tribe, or sect would. Classes, like parties, sects, or tribes, are groups of people within society who share common interests. Common interests arise from the existence of a group of people bound together by blood relationship, belief, culture, locality, or standard of living. Classes, parties, sects, and tribes emerge because of blood relationship, social rank, economic interest, standard of living, belief, culture, and locality create a common outlook to achieve a common end, end quote. Which, you know, 
this is the most revealing thing in that he also rejected class struggle as as the foundation of uh you know arab socialism for him it was anti-imperialism and you know building an uh, a sort of self self-reliant libya in which the libyan peoples would not be dominated by any colonial interest but at the same time he tried to synthesize an arab socialism that avoided the issue of class struggle that sort of uh, tiptoed around the conflict between capitalist and proletarian um, and tried to uh, get everyone on the same page of being serving Libya as, as, a, as a nation, as a people. So how, and, um, and so also to add, like another really cool thing that, that Gaddafi did was, um, as, as the U.S. called it, um, funding terrorist activities. He was active <laughs> in... He was giving money to the IRA, which I think um, absolves him of all sins. If you if that you give so money cool. to the provisional IRA, you go to heaven. That's, 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 that's <laughs> <my> <laughs> um, no, I think that's like for me, like when when learning about Gaddafi, was one of the things that made him so like important and 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 just like really um, um, productive and powerful and in fighting colonial interests was that he actively did do what he could through funding and 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 intervention in ways that he could to to help people fight independence, have independence movements against colonialism, which seems he did that, I would say, more than any other leader that we that we Far more than any other. Oh, yeah, by far. I mean, more than Nasser even, who was... Nasser's interest was strictly in the Middle East. Like, he was not concerned with anything beyond that. Like, he supported other, like, you know, secular nationalist forces, like, say, the the Marxist-Landist group in South Yemen during the Yemeni Civil War. Mm -hmm. Um... But he was not interested in, for example, the Irish struggle or or ETA in Spain, the the Basque group, or mm-hmm. uh, you know other. Whereas Gaddafi was more than willing to basically be like, "Here, have a few AK 47s Do you want a C four? Here, have a C four. Have ten C fours. You know, man. If only if only he was still alive today, West Virginia IWW would be sending Gaddafi a letter. You'd get like a crate of like RPGs airdropped into like the Appalachian <laughs> Mountains. It would be <laughs> and, and, and like you said, the it, it feels like in the actual practice of, of what... Uh, Gaddafi and, and his government had built up, like even if it was like inadvertent, I think, like came closer to skirting, kind of uh, more a, a more Marxian take on like the economic and development side than than like you said like like Nasser did. Although uh, Gaddafi definitely pulled, I think, more from from like Nasserism than he did from Marxism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Gaddafi saw Nasser as his idol, so in many ways he tried to emulate him. But he he went even further, and that's something I find very impressive, because, you know, like I said, he didn't just reform land by saying, okay, this is the amount, like, the limit uh, of size of which, how much, like, a family can own. He collectivized the land, so farmers were working mm-hmm. uh, on farms as collectives, um, as well as um, he he established people's committees, which were, like, they... The People's Committee sort of worked alongside the popular congresses or popular conferences, sorry. Uh, so whereas the popular conferences were basically like you and everyone in your block um, forming a sort of base level legislative assembly to debate mm-hmm. the political issues and, you know, raise any political uh, demands to the National Congress. 
um, the people's committees were more of an executive where like local people's committees could be established to run your school, run your hospital. Um, and a lot of these people's committees uh, ended up, you know, seizing various private uh, uh, corporations and turning them to worker co-ops. So like a lot of private sector corporations were turned to workers to be run democratically by by the workers who would elect uh, a sort of board that would govern them, a people's committee that mm-hmm. would govern them. Um, and in that way, that was like as close to Marxism as you could get, short of like, you know, abolishing the profit motive and abolishing, uh, you know, production as commodity, really. Yeah, um, I can, I can, I, like you describing that, I can hear like Richard Wolf salivating. Yeah, exactly. Like, ben, oh, you know, yeah. somewhere. Yeah, it's, this, is, it, this is the most rich, like, like Richard Wolf would have, if if Gaddafi was uh, like if if he saw early Gaddafi and by the way, let Gaddafi is a completely different animal. And I'm gonna get to that in a second. Uh, early Gaddafi, Richard Wolf would have moved to Libya to work with Gaddafi. Like this is this is this is like you know yeah <laughs> yeah. He would have gotten paid for it. By the way, Gaddafi would have paid him well for it. I have to say, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's like interesting one of the things too. he says. Sorry, oh, go, go ahead. On. No, go ahead. Go ahead. One of the things he says in Gaddafi says in the Green Book is quote. The ultimate solution lies in abolishing the wage system, emancipating people from its bondage, and reverting to the natural laws which define relationships before the emergence of classes, forms of government, and man-made laws. These natural rules are the only measures that ought to govern human relations, end quote. And by natural rules, he means production as, like, you know, for need, not for for, uh, selling, for for, uh, exchange. I mean, he's got there. I don't see what's... I mean, that's, like, such a, like, a coherent... It's like, man, why didn't you just read Marx a little more? He probably did, like... (laughs) Yeah, I probably did, yeah. Because yeah, you're yeah, there. No, he, he, he took he took a lot from Marx. The only the only criticism I have of early Gaddafi, and again, late Gaddafi, I have a lot more criticism of, uh, was that early Gaddafi was still like you know towing the line with like social conservatism. So like a third chapter of the Green Book deals with the social, like what he calls the social issues of Libya, and there's an entire chapter dedicated to women in which he oh, describes. Boy. Yeah, he's like. Men and women are the same, but they're also different because women have periods and women have pregnancy. And you can't ask a woman to work the same way as a man because, you know, it would ruin her beauty and her body. Mm. Um, oh, he, he's a dude who rocks. He's the original he's a dude, dude who rocks. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very dude who rocks. Yeah. yeah. He was like, hey, sweetie, I'll, I'll open the door for you. But like, what was it like? I mean, Gaddafi. Wasn't he known, like, even the U.S. media was like, wow, look at this hot, hot as fuck dude just, like, making noise over there. Young Gaddafi was a stud. Young Gaddafi was an absolute stud. I will not deny that. Like, um, he, he aged very poorly, um, did not age under the Sahara sun. But uh, early Gaddafi definitely was, uh, like, he's like early Stalin in the sense that you could definitely Our see there's a lot of God. sexual appeal there. Man, I would let early Stalin do whatever he wanted to I do. I mean, they, they don't age gracefully, but I imagine you're under a lot of stress. So yeah. You know, yeah. 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 <laughs> when you have the world superpower trying to assassinate you every every few years, uh, it does tend to like age you quite quite uh, quickly. Yeah. Um. But the one point that that I was going to get to, and I don't want to sound like some just dipshit American. It's like every country that's not America that does something like a socialism is the same. But, uh, like, you see kind of the Bolivarian Revolution and the way that, that they kind of approach the economic question. And I believe that Chavez even said, like, this isn't a Marxist revolution or whatever, like, like that. Although, 
like he he read Trotsky, he read Marx. Like there's definitely like those elements to it. But like hell, if there's a revolution in the states, like I I think I said this on on another episode. It's like we're not going to set out and be like this is a Maoist revolution or this is an anarchist revolution or whatever. It's like we like you work in the chips fall as they this may. Is a, this is a revolution class. Eighty three A B parenthesis lowercase i. <laughs> speak speak for yourself, President G. If you are listening, I will happily do Maoism in the U.S. Just airdrop supplies <laughs> and we will yeah. do protracted people's war in the mountains of Appalachia. <laughs> President Xi, <laughs> pl- President Xi, please send aid. That's all. And we've yeah. give you some, we'll give you some coordinates. There's a lot of hills that you can just hide things behind. Just drop them in. Send some <laughs> Chinese-made Kalashnikovs, please. <laughs> but like, you see how how like these productive forces were built out, like in in the in like Bolivarian Latin America, and then uh, also with uh, to to revisit like the African socialists, like Kwame Nkrumah. Who said in in uh, uh, neocolonialism, uh, the last stage of imperialism? He said, like, we need to rebuild or build up our productive forces because, much like Libya, like very agrarian society being absolutely fucking plundered by the West. And he's like, but we can't do it in the same way that like every like most like Europe had did their industrial revolution, like capitalists, like whatever says like yeah, they cannot the, also commit imperialism yeah have the focus yeah. on the worker and you you see like uh young like early Gaddafi doing that as well like like you said with like especially with like the emphasis on co-ops and then like the nationalization of some industries and i i think oh yeah i mean he nationalized almost all industries all of foreign trade was nationalized uh, one of the good things that he did that i really like because i'm someone who's currently paying rent to be in an apartment is mm-hmm. that he prohibited the, the the owning of more than one house. So you own your house, that's your home. You can't own another property to rent to someone. That is period. great. Yeah, that absolutely. Rules, yeah. That is should be that should be a thing. Yeah, that is yeah, I can't like there is so much I mean, and that is what is like constantly any like you know, we we've talked about this on the show before, and we you know, and other people as you read, like an importance to any decolonial anti-imperialist movement is like relationship to land and having mm-hmm. like effective you know, land reform that belong, that is both like protective of the working class and protective of, of your national interests against imperialist powers is so important. And of course it comes up again and again. And it does seem that like Gaddafi, there's a reason Gaddafi was in power for 50 years. Yeah. I mean, it's very, it's very telling to see a difference between Gaddafi's vision of the land as a collective ownership versus say Mm -hmm. Nasser, whose, whose only extent of land reform was like, how much land a single family can own like like seeing land as private property versus collective property is i think one of the biggest differences between the two and why i think gaddafi was in many ways a lot more successful and a lot closer to something like communism and yeah i think a lot of the green book was pretty much taken right out of the communist manifesto whether he read it or not it was very like you know grounded in in marxian economics um Along with like weird social conservatism, like I said, like you know, yeah, sweetie, please don't open the door. I'll take it for you. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> basically. Uh, but yeah, he he was he transformed Libya, and you know, officially as well, he changed its name. It became the Socialist People's Libyan Arab Jamahiriya, Jamahiriya meaning republic. So yeah, you know, it, so it, I, it's it's. Oh no! So Sorry. I was just 
no, I was, I was, all I was gonna say was just so like as as we so as we go more into the critique um a section of this part, you have in your notes, um, Gaddafi saw Islam as a foundation of the revolution and used Sharia law as a response to social culture issues. Can you Man, just talk? Jesus Christ, the fucking Ohio Valley. That goddamn there's Sharia Not law. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, if there ever is a revolution in America, I hope it's Sharia law revolution. Just because it's <laughs> fucking hilarious. Uh, uh, but yeah, no, so initially... Gaddafi saw Islam as a, as a fundamental sort of cornerstone of Libyan identity. So Libyans to him were Arab and they were Muslim. So in that sense, he, he, and he saw Islam as like being, um, you know, you can't take, take it inseparable from, from his project. So initially, all social and cultural issues were to be governed by Islam um, in terms of like, you know, marriage, divorce, uh, things like that. But then when he was going more into the radical socialist project, he realized that Sharia part one of the fundamental aspects of Sharia law was private property, you know, the, the respect for and protection of private property, mm-hmm. and that clashed with his vision of you know collectivization and a socialist republic. So he ends up backtracking from that. He ends up backtracking from using Sharia law as a uh, uh, like a constitution for for all the social and uh, cultural issues of Libya, and it's it's that backtracking that ends up get, get winning him the animosity of the Islamists who see him as becoming too communist and therefore too atheist and and you know um, not Muslim enough and therefore you know they have to fight him for it and that's that's where the opposition to Gaddafi came from mostly the Islamists like you know social conservatives who saw his efforts as being far too uh, you know radical. Yeah, I was about to ask, um, like, you have religion, like, that does play a part in in a lot of, of kind of these revolutions. Uh, like, you have liberation theology, like, especially, like in La- Latin America, liberation theology is huge, but it works kind of in concert, I think, with, with Marxism, where, like, it makes these, uh, it makes these, like, religious texts and teaching more material and less idealistic. And I think that you have that as well, uh, to a much lesser extent. But I think that 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 exists uh, as well with like the kind of uh, the 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 Catholicism in in uh, um, in Ireland against kind of the the Protestant state religion of 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 the UK. Um, But do you think that kind of the religious component? To the Arab world, uh, whether that's like Shia or, or Sunni Muslims, do you think that 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 kind of part of the culture prob- is 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 uh, kind of a force that maybe rubbed up against uh, the more I guess atheistic, materialistic kind of uh, uh, tendencies of Marxism, uh, as opposed to like kind of integrating itself with it? Like I said, uh, liberation theologists. Uh, maybe and in, 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 uh, other other nations may have done. Okay, there are two parts to this question. The, for, the, for the first part, I'm going to talk about Sunnism and then Shiism because they're two different mm-hmm. uh, approaches. Sunnism is, is a lot more conservative. It's a lot more orthodox and a lot, a lot more socially conservative. Um, and in, in the sense that uh, there's even a, a Sunni-recognized hadith. Um, a hadith, by the way, is a thing that the Prophet said that we should, you know, follow. Uh, and mm-hmm. The hadith, like, you know, people vary on the reliability of the hadith. But there was a hadith that said that, uh, you know, I, I'm paraphrasing that because I can't remember off the top of my head. But basically it says that 
you know, um, you shouldn't agitate for revolution because even even a tyrannical government is uh, better than uh, instability, like sort of like political instability. So in that sense, the sort of acquiescence to power, the abstinence to power um, is a lot more Sunni ingrained than, say, Shia ingrained. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though Sunni, Sunni uh, you know, groups like the Muslim Brotherhood were revolutionary in nature in many ways, they were also very conservative in a sense that uh, they weren't they weren't radical in terms of economics. They weren't radical in terms of culture. In terms of you know trying to like reimagine the world for them, it was go back to the way things were under the Prophet or you know under some some vision of that. Mm-hmm. What's What's interesting is that. Shiism, well, Shiism was founded on a revolutionary ideology, which was, you know, the Imam Hussein revolting against the so-called tyranny of the Umayyads. Um, and because of that, it's a lot more amenable to ideas of revolutionary uh, movements. Um, that's not to say that it's open to Marxism. Both Sunnism and Shiism are, you know, they rub, like you said, they rub against Marxism because of its atheistic and materialistic nature. Um, but Shiism does synthesize a revolutionary uh, tenets that that absorb socialism into it. So like, you know, social welfare, uh, the idea of like collective land ownership uh, or or even land reform in some way, shape or form, Uh, you know, uh, the the idea of wealth redistribution. It won't go as far as like, you know, um, preventing private property, for example, and collectivizing Mm -hmm. everything. But it will go to like say that you know we should nationalize things for the benefit of the of the people and the government and and so on and so forth. Uh, so in that sense, it's more open to some socialist ideas. Uh, but in, in most you know in practice, most opposition to people like Gaddafi, Saddam, uh, uh, Assad, Nasser, they all came from the the Islamist right, the Sunni Islamist right. Uh, but Saddam is the Shia uh, uh, who were mostly opposed to him, but that was because of you know, the sectarian, the sectarian nature of his rule. Um, whereas in Iran, the 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 Ayatollahs who took power after '79 were in direct conflict with Today, which was the Iranian Communist Party, um, mm-hmm. and they ended up purging Today, which was you know for them it was Today was seen as not a viable uh, cooperate. Like, you can't cooperate with the communists, so they were purged. Um, so yeah, in that sense. Religion, this is a problem, right? Because, you know, you have like 2 billion Muslims in the world, right? And you have these people who are very, very attached to their religion. Um, And Islam is a lot more political than Christianity insofar as, you know, when Jesus went around, he was preaching, you know, quite radical ideas, but he never Mm -hmm. really was interested in building a state, like a nation state. Whereas Muhammad, as a prophet, he was not just a prophet. He was a statesman and a warlord and a... He established the first nation state in in the Arabian Peninsula, in the interior of the Arabian Peninsula. So a lot of the Quran deals with things like taxation, uh, property rights, uh, inheritance, uh, you know, alms, social welfare. So in that sense, the Quran is as much an economic text as it is uh, as a theological text. So. Yeah, a lot it's, of less, Muslims, it's less golden rule and more like yeah. uh, um, economy um, textbook. That is so yeah. like that's something I didn't know at all. That's that's just wildly intriguing. Wow! Yeah, like it literally spells out in the Quran that people must be taxed two point five percent of all wealth they owned for more than a year, and that tax must go to the state to establish a robust uh, social safety net for 
the needy, the orphans, the widows, the elderly, the sick, uh, you know, in terms of like healthcare, housing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the Quran talks about, uh, you know, uh, how it, it's important for the Muslim state or the Muslim community to look after um, anyone who is uh, incapable of working, uh, anyone who is orphaned, um, uh, you know, uh, property, private property is to be respected, but uh, wealth hoarding is not. Like, you know, uh, if, if someone is hoarding wealth, say in a famine or, or something, then it is legitimate to seize that wealth for, for the people who are starving and so on and so forth. And this is yeah, all in the Quran. This is not like, yeah, like Muhammad went around establishing a state with a very, very clear economic and political uh, vision and goal. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me very upset that I was grown up being forced the Bible instead, where we got lame. Like, that's, that's so much more, like, useful than just stories about giant fish eating people. And, um... <laughs> I... The Bible is... Okay, I... Uh, for, as far as I'm concerned, the, the Bible is just a more boring version of the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings. So as far as I'm concerned, just read Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot less incest in Lord of the Rings. That's so true. That, 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 that's an improvement. Uh, oh, man. No, that, but, that explains, like, a lot of, of kind of this friction. Because that, like... Yeah, because a lot of us, as you know, we're showing our asses here by being, you know, ignorant Americans. Yeah, oh, where, yeah. Because we're like, for us, like, when, when our understanding of, of religion is so, like, in a way, like, it's funny because, like, it's both devoid and uh, of politics while also being the end Immensely of politics. Immensely political, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's seen as, like, you, it's not political because you're on the responsibility. It's your responsibility to do good. And if you're bad, or if you or not, if you're bad, if you don't receive wealth, then you are not viable. And it's kind of like stops and ends there to where instead of lying a foundational, uh, fundamental groundwork for there's none of that. There's more of just throwing daggers of ideology to, to justify yeah, ruling the ruling class. I think that, that uh, with, I think that that's kind of the, the, I mean, liberation theology of course exists uh, across like the religious spectrum. It's not just with Christianity, but I think that some of the like, or for lack of a better word, I'll say like largest examples of it, I think come from the word of Christianity because you don't have that like material grounding as much in the text. It's much more idealistic. Like, like, yeah, giant the, the Jesus was a socialist guy, but, but, <laughs> but like, but like the, the liberation theology like ties it to the Marxism and makes it like grounded. Whereas like you're saying, like, like in the Quran, like, you're you're talking about like 2.5% tax rates and like you can you hoarding wealth bad but like you can have like an acre of land for your for your family or whatever and i think yeah that, like you know farms are good you should you should farm but you can't uh take other people's land and you know uh you can't you should renting is discouraged you shouldn't be renting to other people uh yeah. you know and things things are very like you know things like inheritance like you're you're allowed to give your your children inheritance. It's I'm not saying it's radical by any means today. It was <clears throat> radical for its time, but yeah. it's it's for today. It's 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 the it's the vehicle for conservative opposition to more radical policies. So you know, uh, again, two point five percent tax, but it's a flat rate tax. So for 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 people like Gaddafi who want to nationalize all industry, uh, you know, it's seen it's seen as way too radical and not Islamic. 
Um, and even today, when you look at the Middle East, the, the sort of political currents are such that you have like, uh, you know, uh, sort of single, single uh, secular, secular dictators, uh, for lack of a better word, like, you know, Hosni Mubarak before he fell and now Sisi um, in Egypt. Um, mm-hmm. And then you have the, 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 the biggest opposition and frankly, the only viable opposition, which are Islamists, the Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamist groups that that have the mass base and the organizational framework to oppose the state. There is no left really in the Middle East anymore. You can thank the Dulles brothers for that. You can thank H.W. Uh, Bush, all the freaks in the CIA um, who you know graduate from Yale, um, jack off into a co- coffin or into a skull or whatever the fuck they do over there. Uh, and then you know they 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 gave a bunch of weapons to to the Islamists, and that led to the purging of the communists. And here we are. Damn. Yeah, and here here we are. That's just a, that's such a a concise way to to really <laughs> to really bring it all together there. But um, so yeah. well, going to the CIA at oh, one go. point. <laughs> um, sorry to cut. Sorry to cut. No, please, sure, please. Um, for just, sure. Just like, I just want to clarify that even though early Gaddafi was very radical. In the 90s and early 2000s, he was more than happy to work with the U.S. and and the CIA. In fact, after the invasion of Iraq in 2003, first of all, he abandons his weapons of mass destruction program because he's afraid of an invasion. And secondly, Mm -hmm. he ends up cooperating with the CIA in which Libya was used as a black site for CIA interrogation of terror suspects. So like they were renditioned to Libya to be interrogated. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. Part of it was the collapse of the Soviet Union meant that, you know, you're either part of the U.S. unipolar order or you're, you're frozen out. And there's no really uh, 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 another, another pole to align yourself with, um, especially with, you know, the Reagan uh, oil embargo basically crippling Libya's economy. Um, and then, uh, you know, H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, they kept up the embargo. They added Libya to the state sponsors of terrorists which meant that, you know, businesses can't work with Libya. Other countries refused to, like, you know, trade with Libya, which sort of made it a pariah on the international state, which in many ways forced Gaddafi's hand into, you know, working more with the U.S., which I'm not justifying by any means. I think that was a poor idea. But yeah, you know, like I said, late Gaddafi is a completely different animal to early Gaddafi. Yeah, for sure. And and you touched on a really important point with the dissolution of uh of the Soviets because uh that that's something I think like with China as well is that they opened up you have Deng Xiaoping uh like op- opening the o- opening China up to like foreign investment. It was very heavily regulated um and I think that as far as opening up uh, for that, I, I think that, that that Deng Xiaoping and and the the CPC handled it uh, very very well, um, all things considered. And have in in the time since then, uh, the last thirty almost forty years have 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 kind of heightened the contradictions and kind of tried to close those doors uh, up. But but when you didn't have kind of the power or land that China had. Uh, like you said, what what else does can, can Libya really do? Because you highlighted Gaddafi was 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 afraid of a land invasion, and and very obviously the U.S. had no fucking qualms about bombing the shit out of the Middle East. So. Yeah, I mean he saw what happened to Saddam, and he was like, "No, thank you, not not for me, thanks." Um, yeah, it was very very 
uh, yeah, and Libya, like, you know, unlike North Korea, which had nuclear weapons and can protect itself, Libya was didn't have them um, and was far from getting them. And uh, there was no, um, you know, uh, patron like the Soviet Union to protect them on the international stage. It was very likely, I mean, Reagan, for God's sake, Reagan bombed Libya. He, he, he launched like several airstrikes into Libya in the 80s. So Gaddafi is very familiar that the U.S. could just as likely do that again or even worse. Like, you know, put troops on, you know, boots on the ground and mm-hmm. all that. Yeah, for sure. Um, Which is not to excuse, again, that Libya, you know, cooperated with the CIA and you had people being tortured in Tripoli by the CIA uh, with Gaddafi's consent. But, you know, in, in, the, in the post-9-11 world, it's very difficult to navigate that, that, that political environment uh, if you're a country that is not, you know, entirely friendly with the U.S., like, like Libya was, being a state sponsor of terrorism and all that. Right. Um, well, I think that... Well, actually, <laughs> I mean, if we want to go ahead and, like, get... Um, as we kind <clears> of... <throat> hold on. Um, of course, you can edit that out. So we as we get so as we get towards the end here, um, is really want to cap off is is like what is the we've we've talked about all these history and uh, the different the different leaders of different movements of different sects and how these have have and how different uh, fights against imperialism have happened and the critiques. But what is the state of Arab socialism today? Um, are and why is, I mean. It's not good. So if you want to go ahead and... It, I mean, it, it's non-existent, not just right. not good. It just doesn't exist. Uh, you know, again, you can thank the Dulles brothers. You can thank um, uh, fucking Kennedy, Johnson, uh, Nixon. Um, I could go down the list, really. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I mean, and part of it does, does... The blame does go to various Arab leaders because, you know, Nasser was not interested in building a popular base. He was very uh, single-minded about his approach. Um, and then when he died, Sadat took over and was a lot more conservative and, you know, economically liberal. Uh, when Hafez al-Assad took over from Salah Jadid in 1970, he initiated what was called the Corrective Revolution, which, because Jadid was a Maoist, by the way. Jadid was a full-on Maoist. He he believed in, like, collective land reform, uh, you know, uh, uh, nationalizing everything, abolishing private property. Um, he, that made him somewhat unpopular with the merchant class. And then, you know, Assad, uh, Assad Sr. made a deal with the merchant class, overthrew him, and then sort of liberalized the economy to a fair extent. Uh, but the, the point being, a lot of these, a lot of the countries which were once centers of Arab socialism, so like Syria and Egypt, they just don't have that anymore because in the 80s and 90s, the, 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 the economic pressures of the world, you know, the, the oil glut and the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, sort of the, the the end of history, as as our dear friend Fukuyama would say, um, it, it it a lot of Arab countries lost uh, a lot of their bargaining power internationally as well as their local mm-hmm. uh, you know, economic stability, which meant that they had to you know be absorbed into the like the world markets, um, and that basically led to uh, countries being more and more dicta- dictatorial, like Hosni Mubarak's Egypt and less interested in building a viable political movement. And the left is dead. And the only viable opposition to these people is the Muslim Brotherhood, because they're the ones who have enough resources to, you know, like if you're, when when Sadat took over Egypt, he gutted the social welfare states, right? So like education is barely funded. um, Classes are overcrowded. uh, Healthcare is 
underfunded. There are no clinics, really. Uh, but the Muslim Brotherhood has the money because it has wealthy backers to say, you know, if build a clinic in your neighborhood. So if you're an, um, an Egyptian worker and your, your wife is sick and you take her to a clinic and it's run by the Muslim Brotherhood, you begin to associate them with being, you know, a functioning state, a functioning, you know, people who are there for you. Um, and you begin to see them as a viable opposition figure, whereas the left just doesn't have that, that level of a framework. And part of that is, you know, um, people like Nasser, you know, purging the communists first, mm-hmm. people like Saddam purging the communists, people like Assad purging the communists. Um, and then part of it is, you know, CIA support. Part of it is the Islamists killing them. Uh, so just there's nothing, there's no Arab socialism anymore, really. Uh, and that's interesting, and- though, about the Muslim Brotherhood, because like, you know, that's built like offering alternatives is, you know, a form of building dual power and is like a leftist method. You know, the ideology isn't there, but it, I mean, the, that is like a left, you know, that is. That's a you know building the dual yeah, power of having the other certain, options. Yeah, they are doing. Oh, they of... have they have very robust dual power movement. Like, yeah, I, I assume they wouldn't use the same terminology, but you know, like they have clinics, they run pharmacies, they can get you jobs, they can get you subsidized housing, childcare. Like, you know, if the state isn't there for you and they are, you're gonna start associating them with 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 an entity that can satisfy your your basic social needs, and you know that's very smart and. Again, part of it is the fact that the Muslim Brotherhood has some very wealthy benefactors and patrons, um, including the country of Qatar. But that's a whole other thing altogether. Really. <laughs> yeah, the uh, I was just about to say they're doing like survival programs. They're doing serve the people programs. Uh, like you said, you not using that language, but like this is what like Huey Newton talked about. This is what what Mao talked about, and they're doing it just in the name of 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 uh, of islam as opposed to yeah. uh to, to to communism and and as we like examine these histories and, and movements uh the purges definitely played a part in that to say the very least but also um i think something that's, that's interesting with kind of the rise and, and fall of some of these uh for lack of a better word characters for some of these these historical figures is like uh, like in and we can zero in on on Saddam for this especially is that uh, there was no way uh, w- like you, I think you mentioned very early on in the show that that uh, Arab socialism could have taken a lot from the idea of the vanguard and kind of uh, the way that that like maybe eventually like the PLA operator like how the DPRK works with like their Songun policy like military first policy is um it not only does uh like like the military does isn't really a self-serving it's a community it's community serving but then you also have the party as is providing an education uh and 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 providing kind of a method uh, of which like it can kind of snuff out opportunism or at least have a greater likelihood of snuffing out opportunism. Because like you highlighted with Saddam Hussein, like self-serving as fuck and just like climbed the ladder, like got by on 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 his ability to talk. I don't know. Um, but uh, uh, you, you, there's a, a lesser likelihood of that happening, I think, uh, with, with kind of the, the vanguard sort of sort of structure as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a fine line to toe between party discipline and, and a sort of political freedom. 
mm-hmm. but yeah, the, the problem was that there was no uh, like like you know when you look at the PLA as, as a as a military in service to a party or even the Bolsheviks, right? The Bolshevik army as being uh, in service to the Bolshevik political organs. Um, there was none of that in the Middle East. The army was seen as both separate from and above the state, and it became, in effect, it became a state within a state. You know, the, the, the phrase deep state was started to describe Turkey, but it could just as easily describe Syria and Iraq under Saddam and, and, and Egypt, insofar as it's just a, a military that's, that, that re, reaffirms, reifies class, its class characteristic as, as owners of the means of production more than anything else, really, instead of being, you know, uh, the armed wing of of a political party with a with a distinct political project. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, like that's from like from as the more I learn, you know, is is about like um about Arab socialism and, and its movements and its governments is like the thing that like when, when while it being devoid of of Marx of Marx and Lenin and communist ideology, like the problem of of losing that material analysis as you just end up recreating the contradiction mm-hmm. by having the military b- become the new bourgeoisie and you're unable. To stop that because it's not it's not seen as as des- as in the way of the social programs or or or, or the nationalism. So that no, this has been incredibly yeah. incredibly informative. Thank you so much, Amir. Uh, Amir, this has just been. Um, Thanks for having me. I really yeah no that. yeah this is yeah no this is, um, this is I have so much. I already like I already have in my in my uh, in my book cart like three books that you've mentioned today um, that I'm going to order. So. Uh, I'm excited to continue learning about this, and um, I I can't wait to dig into pedagogy of the oppressed finally, and also oh, yeah, please do the English translation of the Quran so I can learn about those sweet sweet tax rates. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, handshake libertarians Islamists only two point five percent flat tax rate. <laughs> If you if you want oh, if you want Ron Paul to say the Shahada and become an Islamist, just tell him about that flat rate. That's the name of this oh episode of the Ron God. Paul to Islamist pipeline. <laughs> I'm just oh, like yeah. I'm just imagining like oh my God I'm just imagining Ron or Rand Paul reading the Quran and being like and and then like it, it, reading the paragraph or like the section section of the text that like outlines this this tax model and then the next day stepping out of his house like is a caricature i know i'm not a dumbass this isn't how like muslim people dress but being like a racist it's how ron paul would yeah think. but it's yeah. it's a rand paul one and he walks <laughs> and he walks out of his house like with a turban and robes and shit oh i would i would die the day that Rand paul would step up in the senate and say there is no god but allah and muhammad is his prophet <laughs> what <While laughs> waving a quran <laughs> He, he just gets up on the stand. Oh, Akbar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Okay. So that, uh, thank you. Uh, I want to, I want to, th- I want to uh, say you're welcome to the listeners for that image. Um, so before we yeah. get off one last time, just so, just cause we like to have plugs at both the top and the bottom. If you'd like one more time, just to let the listeners know where they can find you and your, and your show and your work. And if there's anything else you want to, you want to say before we uh, get on out of here? Uh, yeah, I mean, you could find me at Das Criminal Pod. Um, I am a co-host along with my lovely friend Aaron. 
Uh, I have a Substack in which I write things, all things past and present, Middle East, along with like deviations into culture, uh, movies I watch, and like you know critiquing them, things like that. I have I have a good critique of the movie Taken as as an exploration of the American psyche. If you want to be interested in that, oh hell yeah, um, yeah, it's Amer A A M E R dot Substack dot com, um, and you can find me also on Twitter at uh, Ibn Kulthum, I B as in boy N. Uh, K-U-L-T-H-U-M. Hell yes. All right. So we covered a whole lot of ground. Uh, we really hope that over the, the this probably almost two hours by the time it's edited, uh, that, that our listeners really learned something. Y'all absorbed it. And you probably got to listen to this again because there was a whole lot of names. There's a whole lot going on. The world's fucking yeah, complex. I mean, if, the world's wild. If you wild. guys want, we could do part two at some point. I know you guys are going <laughs> to go on break, but uh, if you want, I could do an entire part two on Yemen and, and uh, Marxist Republic, People's Democratic Republic of South Yemen, which was very much a Marxist Republic model, uh, very unlike the rest of these countries, and uh, very interesting in its own way. There's so Fuck much rich yes. history to cover. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, we could talk about that. that yeah, that's... Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, uh, you guys enjoy your break. Uh, there's not no, no rush. Like whenever you want. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But hell yeah, I guess we'll 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 wrap it up. Bring it on home. Thanks again so much, Amr, for for coming on. This was, like I said, absolutely fucking incredible. Like I learned shit that I never expected to learn about today. I probably showed my ass as an American uh, for all of that's this. What we, that's okay, what we worry. do. At least <laughs> at least at least we're at least we're you know trying to learn. I guess that's but, true. Um. um so, uh, oh no, Chris, do the outro. I was I getting guess. There. Yeah, yeah, okay, we're, go we're ahead. We're going there, brother. Um, all right, y'all, you're listening to a brand new Hot and Fresh Out the Kitchen episode of Mandatory OT. We are affiliates of the West Virginia IWW here for all fellow workers of the Ohio Valley Wide and Wonderful West Virginia, of Western Maryland, and of Eastern Ohio. If you're from Southwest Pennsylvania, if you're from Eastern Kentucky, please hit us up. We'll put you in touch with some awesome organizers. Truthfully, if you're from anywhere, and you don't know who to talk to, uh, if, if somehow you stumbled upon our show uh, and, and don't really know what to do, talk to us. We will try to put you in touch with with some of the awesome folks we know because of doing this, because of, of doing other shit, um, uh, from solidarity, whatever. Like um, We have a website and socials at Mandatory OT, uh, at West Virginia IWW, Facebook.com slash West Virginia IWW, West Virginia IWW.org. Um, uh, give us your worker stories. Tell us about your workplace, your boss suck, your coworkers rule. Tell us about that sweet, 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 sweet solidarity. Um, we're trying to make a forum, uh, kind of uh, alleviate some of the stresses of alienation or at least show people that they're not totally alone on that forum. Uh, anyway, uh, hit us with that five stars. Uh, this has been absolutely incredible. Thanks again, Amr, for coming on. And our last question. What song would you like to end the episode with? Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, okay, because we mentioned the uh, the IRA and Gaddafi's applying them, uh, come out to you black and tans. Hell oh, yes. Yeah. Okay, Hell yeah. yes. We're going to throw that fucking Wolf Tones version in there. <laughs> yeah, please do. Yes. But Hell yeah, thanks so much for coming on, and we will stop recording now. I was born on a Dublin street where the loyal drums did beat, and those loving English feet, they walked all over us. And every single night when me dad would 
the neighbors out with this chorus. Come out, you black and tans, come out and fight me like a man. Show your wife how you won medals down in Flanders. Tell her how the IRA made you run like hell away from the green and lovely lanes of Kilishandra. Come, let us hear you tell how you slandered great Parnell when you thought him well and truly persecuted. Where are the sneers and jeers that you loudly let us hear when our leaders of 16 were executed? Come out, you black and tans, come out and fight me like a man. Show your wife how you won medals down in Flanders. Tell her how the IRA made you run like hell away from the green and lovely lanes of Kilishandra. Come tell us how you slew them old Arabs two by two. Like the Zulus, they had spears and bow and arrows. How bravely you faced one with your 16 pounder gun And you frightened them damn natives to the marrow Come out, you black and tans, come out and fight me like a man Show your wife how you won medals down in Flanders Tell her how the IRA made you run like hell away From the green and lovely lanes of Kilishandra the time is coming fast And I think them days are here When each English shining He'll run before us And if there'll be a need Then our kids will say Godspeed With the verse or two Of singing this fine chorus Come out, you black and tans Come out and fight me like a man Show your wife how you won medals Down in Flanders Tell her how the IRA made you run like hell away from the green and lovely lanes of Kill.